Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. When I was in New York, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a generation rich. I was laying there, practically naked, and I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes, I, I believe my eyes were all right back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked God, is there evidence So I'm I'm working on the life is life cover right now, man. I it needs some more work. It needs some more fatness. That's the best way to describe so, it. So yeah, you're just you're just sick of the uh, sick of our theme song. And you're like, I, I hate is, is everything it like from I like make. Your, like your earlier period of two months, two or three months ago. Yeah, I learned a lot using since that then. Thing? Has it been like what six months now? Yeah, at least six months, I yeah. think. Yeah. We need a new one with some new voices because all that stuff is like from oh, man, like two old. years, three years old by now. Yeah. So it it, it disgusts me. <laughs> you, you are here. Yeah. We spent the last two shows without you. What up? Of course, that was uh, that was only because was it peaceful? It was in the same day. Yes, it was very peaceful. <laughs> but you did miss a great discussion about Bigfoot and. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a big uh, Bigfoot fan, so not a big Bigfoot fan. No, <laughs> that's I'm a tongue twister, man. A big Bigfoot fan. Well, anyway, Rob, how you doing, buddy? 
Um, it's been doing, a couple of weeks since we actually sat here. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, doing good. I'll lie and say I'm doing great. Yep. Yeah. It'll be like the uh, the leisure hour and say Robberino, <laughs> <laughs> like Jeff says. He's, so he's the Bonnaroo man. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. You're getting ready to go here in like two days. Two days. Oh man, like like people would love like there's people that would love to go to Bonnaroo like spend their lives paying that $500 ticket to go and like this guy right here dreads it like like, like hates it with such a passion (laughs) I'm gonna see Slayer though so that's gonna be cool oh that that will be cool I I was being facetious it's not really a $500 ticket but (laughs) well how much is it it's it's 300 (laughs) whatever yeah it's 300 500 I still can't afford it spend $300 to go sit in a hot field for a week you know Mm -hmm. with hippie sweat all over you porta potties smelling smelling patchouli (laughs) oil yeah (laughs) patchouli everywhere To cover up the stench of the whole festival. What, what's some of the lineup? I I couldn't even tell you. I don't know any of the bands this year. And, and that's just a testament to how old I'm getting probably. but Johnny um, Corndog and the Future Birds. Yeah, they're going to be great. <laughs> that's probably a real band name, though. So, some of the names are insane. Is. It, like, it yeah. is. It is. is it? <laughs> now, Pearl Jam is the big headliner this year. Oh, are they? Yeah. Slayer's not the big headliner? No, they're in, they're in one of the tents. Okay, well, they're getting kind of old. They know? just fit in wherever they can, really. Those they're, guys are like 60 by now. Right? Yeah, they're, they're just trying to make their need, cheddar they still. The air, they need the air conditioning. <laughs> 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 they're not as hardcore as they used to be. Well, speaking of uh, stuff that's hardcore, you may have heard while over the Memorial Day weekend, unless you've been in a cave somewhere, as I often like to say on this program, about Harambe, the ape that was killed at the Cincinnati Zoo. And in case you don't know, a child walked away from his mother, fell into the gorilla pit at the Cincinnati Zoo, and basically was... Now, some people say he was being guarded, and some people say that he was being thrown around in the little pool area. That was right next to the gorilla, but there was a large 17-year-old silverback gorilla named Harambe that was in there. Apparently, they had lured all the female gorillas off with, uh, I guess, uh, treats, and then they got Harambe in there. He was the only one in there. So, the zoo made this decision to shoot the gorilla. So, that's the basic story. And social media has just blown up about this. Now, Rob, you and I were talking about it beforehand. And let's talk a little bit about how the zoo reacted. And what do you, what you were telling me what you thought about this? Well, I just, I mean, obviously it's horrible that they had to shoot it, but I don't really see what alternatives they had. You know, I mean, if if you tranquilize the thing, it's going to take 20 to 30 minutes to set in. It's going to piss it off. And this is a male aggressive yeah, potentially this is, this very, is a very big dangerous animal. animal. <clears throat> right. And I mean, it, it's horrible and it's sad, but I don't, I don't really see what else I could have done. He, he has the capacity to uh, grab that kid's legs and rip him long ways, like all yeah, the way down yeah. his body. Rip him in half. Yeah. <laughs> basically. <laughs> to say that he would actually probably do that, it probably would be more likely the gorilla wouldn't know his own strength and would have, you know, bashed the kid's head in or, 
you know, God, God knows. I mean, Lord yeah. forbid what would have happened. He could have flung him like a hundred feet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, those things are strong. Granted, they're not as aggressive as chimpanzees, but they're still pretty strong animals. And the thing that I want to know as far as the zoo is concerned, though, is whether they had some kind of contingency plan in place in case something like this happened. Right. Like we were saying earlier, that's, the, you know, there is definitely precedent for this. This has happened yeah. several times. It's <clears throat> right. Well, that seems to be a pretty good contingency plan to me. But shoot him on sight. Do you think that that was a contingency plan? Was yeah. Just to shoot him? Kill them. <laughs> just like the tranquilizer. Now, you had kids that fell into a gorilla pit before, at least I think on two, I think at least two other occasions. Right. And so in those cases, the uh, there it was female gorillas that kind of protected the child. And they were able to get the kid out right away. In this case, you have a male gorilla that some people say was protecting the kid. And some people say it was doing was starting to do damage to the kid. OK. All that being said, I think the zoo pretty much had to do what it had to do. It probably did not have much of a choice. They probably could not leave the decision up to the gorilla. It's unfortunate that this gorilla died. It really is. I mean, you're talking about an animal that is on the brink of extinction. We, you know, we may, by the time you know we're 70, 80 years old, we may not have gorillas, but in zoos in this in this world. So that is that is pretty unfortunate to me. <clears throat> right. But social media has just absolutely just blown up. Well, well first it was up. Cecil the lion, remember? Yes. Good point. <laughs> Very good point. Uh, yeah, you know, I forgot about Cecil. Yeah, back in, when was that? That was back last July. Yeah, it was in July because I was in Florida when all that was happening. You had this guy from Minneapolis, Minnesota, where we were a few a few weeks ago. He was uh, a dentist, and he was on this big safari trip in Africa, Zimbabwe, and he killed this lion. And apparently this lion was a protected animal. Yeah, they they had to lure it into a different area in order for it to be legal to shoot it. Yeah, out of the national park, right? So, yeah, this guy, this guy, you know, he probably should have faced if he hasn't faced. We don't know. I don't know what happened. He's rich. He gone. hasn't. No you penalty. Know, it's, it's, yeah, there's probably no penalty. But, like, you know, he would have faced charges in that country, right? Because it's illegal, it's illegal poaching, essentially. And the people that led him there would have faced charges as well. Uh, But social media blew up, man. I mean, it was just outrage after outrage. You know, while... So many, so many thousands of people are being slaughtered in Syria. Everybody is talking about Cecil the Lion. And now we got all kinds of stuff going on. We got this refugee crisis. We got all, you know, Syria is still happening. The world is just turning into just total bedlam and crap. People are dying left and right, but a gorilla gets killed. And it's like people just go insane. I want to read this. This is from the Cincinnati Inquirer. Uh, which Cincinnati is where this happened. Social media turns ugly after a zoo episode. The circumstances surrounding the shooting death of a rare male gorilla at Cincinnati Zoo exploded over the holiday weekend into an international social media-driven firestorm. 
After climbing over a three-foot barrier and through a four-foot hedge, a three-year-old boy fell into a shallow moat surrounding the gorilla exhibit. Fearing for the boy's life, security officers decided to fatally shoot a gorilla, Harambe, who had engaged with the boy in the zoo habitat. By Monday afternoon, a day after the child had been treated and released from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, parent-shaming posts had written, risen to indirect death threats toward the boy's mother on social media and moved Cincinnati police to act. Even though they're not direct death threats, we're going to reach out to the mother and let her know what's going on if she doesn't know already, said police spokesman Lieutenant Steve Saunders. We're going to keep her in the loop. We're going to err on the side of safety for her and her family. One tweet directed to the Inquirer's account Monday read, Shoot the mother. A Facebook post from a woman in North Carolina said, I had much rather see her dead than the gorilla. <laughs> in the 48 hours since the event Saturday afternoon, Twitter and Facebook posters moved quickly from negative assumptions about the family's race to a relentless barrage of off-vulgar parent shaming, giving rise to twin social media-based petition drives seeking that the boy's mother be charged with neglect and held responsible for the gorilla's death. A memorial vigil for Harambe was advertised on Facebook and drew about 50 people to the zoo Monday. The national holiday Memorial day set aside to honor the country's war dead. All right. So it talks about they're having these, you know, vigils for Harambe. And, uh, let's see the father of four children. This is about some of the guys they talked to at the vigil. The father of four children lamented that the family's race had been ejected into the story. This is not a race issue, said Pastor, who is African-American. This is a human tragedy. Things can happen with children even when they're under a watchful eye of a parent. Some of the first social media reactions Saturday claimed the mother was white. Video of the boy in the moat taken by onlookers could not clearly identify his race. As a result, according to social media posts, they had to be white because white families are the one who take their children to the zoo. Talk about that in a little bit. <laughs> oh Neither zoo officials nor Cincinnati police have identified the family of the boy who wandered into the gorilla exhibit, but they have been identified. Social media commentators wasted no time, however, sharing a Facebook post attributed Sunday to the boy's mother, who said he was doing just fine and thanked zoo staff for their quick action. An alleged lack of remorse over the grill's death, coupled with the circulation of a Facebook photo that appeared to identify the woman and her children as African-American, unleashed a torrent of parent-shaming comments on Facebook and Twitter. Two petition drives were launched on social media. The first, hashtag, justice for Harambe, which seeks to have the boy's mother held accountable for the gorilla's death and have her children removed from her home, had collected 250,000 supporters as of Monday night. This beautiful gorilla lost his life because the boy's parents did not keep a closer watch on the child. Please sign this petition to encourage the Cincinnati Zoo, Hamilton County School Child Protection Services, and Cincinnati Police Department hold the parents responsible, the petition read. Okay, so that gives you a little bit of an idea of what's going on on social media. And I can tell you, by the time this happened, what, I think Saturday of Memorial Day weekend? It's been a little over. At least a couple days ago, yeah. Yeah. So, by the time that uh, this had all kind of happened and people were... I've, I've loved one Facebook post that I kind of, I think really summed it up was somebody said, it's cool that everybody on social, everybody on Facebook is now a primatologist because <laughs> they were all second guessing what the, the gorilla's actions were going to be. <laughs> and social media is like a plague. Yeah. A disease. It, it's, it's kind of like the nor it's, it's the modern day lynch mob. 
It's the cyber lynch mob, basically. Because God knows you can't go out and, you know, take somebody out of the jail or take them out of their homes and kill them anymore. But you can just defame them and write bad stuff about them to your heart's content. And, you know, hey, my personal opinion, the mother, she probably should have, she probably should be in some way looked at. But that's for the police, again, that's for the police to decide, the authorities to decide what they want to do. That could show that, you know, if there's a red flag, maybe that could be a red flag to 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 investigate her. I don't know. But, like, look, there's got to be some responsibility somewhere <clears throat> for, for what happened. And for me, man, what a dumb kid. Like, <laughs> you know, even if it, what is yeah. he, four or five years old? Like, yeah, does it say four, how old the four? Okay. Four? It, yeah, even, four. even. I know he's super young, but even as a four-year-old, you can't see like a 10-foot drop and be like, oh, I don't need to go off of well, that. Well, some, some kids yeah. are just fearless, you know? Well, one thing about it, again, you know, hey, I'm getting this from social media because I could be wrong. One thing that I had heard was, was that the kid had said, I, Mama, I want to go down there. And nothing was done at that point by that mother to take him away. Or at least keep a little bit of extra more of an eye, eye on, on him, him because this kid, you know, and apparently these some other people, some of the stuff that he gotten leaked out said that this kid was kind of a little hellion. Okay, great, you know, you know aren't they your old boy or are hellions? You, you, you know, know, you know they're you know they're gonna try something. I I want to talk about something too, man. Now that you mention it, um, I have a uh, my boss's daughter is coming to be our secretary in, in the company that I work for. And uh, she's supposed to be a school teacher. And so I asked my boss, I was like, what happened with the whole school teaching business? You know, uh, from what I understand, like she was passionate before, you know, I knew that she was passionate about being a teacher. Yeah. And uh, one of the kids, okay, so hold on, let me back up a little bit before I go too fast. Uh, she she was doing the assistant teaching thing first, you know, like an intern and student teaching. Yeah, yeah. And, and she had to do that so many times before she could be on her own, which is standard. You yes. you know this. Uh, I know this. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so the teacher got sick, so um, they dropped it on her ahead of time, you know, qu- uh, quicker than she expected. But she's like, you know, she stepped up to the plate. I've got this. I've got this. You know, I I can do it. And and she. Uh, was going to take over for the teacher. And uh, this kid locks himself in the bathroom and she goes to get him out of the bathroom. And when she opens the door, he, uh, he number ones and number twos in the toilet and he's, uh-huh. and he splashes what's in the toilet when she opens the door all over. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself when he told me that story, like what's, what is going on with these kids nowadays, man? Like, nobody in my generation when I was younger would have done something like that. Do you know what grade level this is? First grade. First grade. Yeah. Man, I mean, you got a situation a lot of the times where parents really don't parent anymore. No, they... Or they're, or they're overwhelmed, or they just don't care, or they want to have more fun than, than Yeah, than they, want, kids. they want to be friends with their kids, or they want yeah. to not have to deal with their kids, or... I mean, it's it's hard being a parent. It really is, but... It's really important that you take it seriously, and a lot or you of end that, up with little, <laughs> little hellion children. 
Right. And a lot of that is, you know, get attention. And it's like, you know, I've, I've been in classrooms and it's like, you know, kids can eat you alive, man. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And it's like, you've got a vicious cycle going on where we're losing really good teachers, really good people that want to go into the field and feel passionate about it. And, you know, you know, you're kind of left with people that just don't care and just were like, you know, oh, it's just a job. What, what you, you what know? you really have to think about here too, is like, what are the factors involved here that are so much different these days that yeah. the children act well, that way? I think it's probably, you know, attention span. It's probably diet. It's probably the fact that they may just want attention from parent or a, or an adult could be abuse that could be another part of it and it's just like you know what well, did she quit just like right yeah, after that? she was done she's like done just from that one incident she was pretty well much done. um she had already been roughed up throughout the day mm-hmm. <laughs> with all the with all the happenings of, of the entire day and then uh that was kind of the final straw for yeah. there's a lot of teachers that go in and they just get they just get totally burned out. And I'm going to tell you, I mean, I've met some teachers that are just like some miserable people, man. Some really miserable people. And it really, you know, it's just uh, like high school, middle school, high school level. That's pretty much like the what I know a little bit. And it's kind of like there's just such a – you've just got this mentality. It's like kids don't care, you know. If they're not in a good school that they where they want to learn, it's like they just they just don't care because they got so much stuff going on in their lives and so many pressures going on that you know a lot of them would rather go out there and sell drugs than you know if you well I'll put it this way that sounds a little insensitive but it's kind of true I mean you can uh, well why does a kid want to go out and succeed when they can go out and they can Make they a lot sell, of money. They can sell drugs. Yeah. You know, what's, well, you know, there's no incentive there. It's and true. I'm talking about, you know, normal public school kids. Yeah, it's know? true. I mean, you look at, like, we got this, you know, we're kind of going off on a tangent here, but we remember that guy that flipped out at McGavick High School, which yeah, is a big, uh, Mr. big high school here. And, yeah. Uh, and when I went all over the world, like, all over. The the viral. <laughs> yeah, I went viral. Guy you want to know threw, who started guy, the school, the fire in the school bathroom? I did. Yeah, the guy threw a chair, you know, threw a chair at the, at the kids. And, and they were just, you know, they were all just, they were all just picking at him and, and hounding him, yeah. you know. And you got to, it, it's just, it's, it's a real lack of respect. But the thing is, you know, at the same time, I don't think a lot of those teachers and the, they, they don't. You know, kids respect different things nowadays than they used to. It's like they're yeah. just not going to respect you just because you're an adult. And it's uh, it kind of it's disgusting too that uh, you know, China, Japan takes pride in in their schooling, and it's really yeah. important to the children, to the teenagers that that they succeed and make good grades because that that means that's your livelihood. You know, unless right. if you don't make good grades, then you're going to be failure yeah. in society. You're not going to go anywhere and have nothing because there's so much pressure in the economy. And, and you have that over there and then the complete opposite over here that no one cares about their education. Well, let me say this too, man. You know, we'll take it with this case with the, with the gorilla and, the, and this kid that jumped in. You saw a lot of racist, vitriolic attacks against this four-year-old child and more against the mother because they were black. Because they thought they they fit this stereotype of 
the, there's a stereotype out there that they can that black people can't control their children. You know, this that's this is a stereotype that is going on. And you know, a lot of people you've got a real especially with this damn election year, you and and what what Trump is talking about and all this stuff that's going on, it's like there's a lot of frustrated people out there and they take out they they find this case with the gorilla which and just magnify it to bring all the rest of the all the rest of this stuff in okay this thing became so politicized and so in in race somehow entered into this discussion well, from absolutely no, from absolute nowhere i don't it, think it was from absolutely nowhere though i mean the media has been shoving that stuff down our throat for years Thank you. For several years. But, I mean, but it's like it's it's like it's it's a non sequitur though. Right. It has absolutely nothing to do race has absolutely nothing to do with this gorilla being killed. Nothing. Right. But it's a non sequitur. Mm-hmm. So it just gets it just gets blown all out of a proportion. I saw a completely nasty thing. And I, I've debated whether I want to read it on this show. Just nasty. Over about this mother, okay. I I had to even screenshot this because I just couldn't believe how nasty this is. Now I want to put a caveat here and say that we I don't agree with this. All right, but I want everybody to hear this because this is the kind of rhetoric that's going up on social media about this mom and her and her kids. Okay. This is from one of those Justice for Harambe. This is a comment on one of their posts. Just one of her, it's not me saying this, just one of her four government check babies. Ever notice how government check babies are skinny, but mommy is always fat? Guess who uses up all the gov, gov check money? After two babies, the gov should make her have an operation to sew her fat knees together. No more gov checks for you. She is too fat to be responsible for four kids solo. You disgust me, you effing pig. You have no respect for yourself, so why would you expect a pig like you to apologize for your negligence that resulted in the unnecessary shooting death of a beautiful endangered animal? Did the gorilla have a gun? Nope. Neither did Trayvon Martin and countless others, and I bet that outraged you, narcissistic pig. Maybe if you're Butt print, it's not the word he used, wasn't so prevalent on your couch. Your kids would know know, and understand consequences for not doing what they are told. I, I'm not going to read any more of it because it's just it's just vitriol. It's just anger. You, you know, yeah. you know, and another thing I'd like to say, too, is that in the early days of the Internet, you know, 1997, everyone was on chat rooms talking to each other. And whenever and we, they've been doing this, this behavior all along. You know yeah. the the just the the hate speech toward one another. Oh, and people are safe behind their computers. They'll say whatever they of course feel like. Yeah, yeah, and that's been going on all along. But back then, media didn't make a big deal. It got deleted. It got deleted, and no one thought twice about it. You know. Well, and the bottom line for me is, even with all the stuff that's going on and everything I've heard about this, I don't have anywhere near enough facts to know. Yeah, whether it was the parents' fault or not. Yeah, th- like I said, that's for the police to decide. Said decide 
do the investigation because right. nobody knows. We, we can't just decide from the few pictures and the three-second videos that we saw of this gorilla with this kid. We don't know what happened. The police need to investigate it. They need to talk to the zoo. They need to see, if, first of all, if the zoo has a barrier that, pre- that can prevent kids from going in there. And second of all, talk to the mother. Find out what happened. Talk to witnesses that were there. Find out what happened. Not just you know display it all over social media. I know people get passionate, but it's just like this guy here is, you know, okay, I'm going to stereotype this guy, I'm, you know. I'm about to say that he's an angry white guy. Okay, I'll bet that. Well, what were you gonna say, Rob? Because I'm sorry, I didn't. You know, well, I was just gonna say that anger. I think I'm getting worked up now. Anger can be okay. <laughs> anger can be a productive force at times, but hatred and bigotry isn't. I don't think ever. Mm-hmm. And that's what this whole thing is blown up into. Let me make this point. You know, I said race came into it as a non sequitur. Has absolutely nothing to do with it. Well, I guess people in the Black Lives Matter movement started tweeting and did absolutely no research. Because as we mentioned before, this child is a black child, right? Well, here's what someone had to say on Twitter. R.I.P. to the gorilla who was just trying to be a gorilla, but white people captured him, and then other white people wanted to touch him. Now he dead. <laughs> the gorilla was taken from its homeland, put in captivity, and then killed to preserve white life. That sounds familiar. I said last night the gorilla was protecting the child. Them crackers just killed him because he was black. Talking about the gorilla was black. Even though... Um, gorillas. <laughs> he was more silver than black. Let's put it that way. Okay, he's a silver rack. I'm gonna tell you what all this stuff. His race me. is silver. I'm gonna tell you what all this reminds me of. This is what. This is what all this stuff. Facebook, all of it. You ever read 1984? Oh yeah. Do you remember 1984 when? They go to the theater in the book. Winston Smith goes in there with the rest of the party officials. And they show the, what is his name? I think his name is Rosenberg or something. He's the big enemy, the big bad, bad enemy of the party. And they do the three-minute hate where they yell at Rosenberg. And they get it all out of their system. And then they can go back and be nice little lemmings for you know Orwell's fictional totalitarian society. That's what Facebook is. Yep. It's the three-minute hate from 1984. Direct your hate at something. At someone. It doesn't matter if it's this, if it's this poor African-American mother in Cincinnati or it's the rich dentist in Minneapolis that killed the lion. Right. Here's an outlet for your anger and your frustration and your hatred. And <laughs> Exactly. It's, it's not a cure for the problems, but it'll exactly. make you feel better. Uh, meanwhile... Other stuff is going on behind the curtain that they don't want you to look at. I take my anger and frustrations out on Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> it's probably a better way. <laughs> yeah. Because they don't want you to see. They don't want you to see what's going on. They'd rather you fight over a gorilla and then for some reason start fighting over race. 
And the people in the Black Lives Matter movement that started posting this stuff up on Twitter, they did absolutely no research. It would have taken 30 seconds to see that the child was black, not white. That the gorilla was not killed to protect a white person. <laughs> oh, now I'm switching sides. <laughs> I mean, it's absurd, but it's the same thing. And we've talked about this many times. It's like you have these different groups that say, oh, we're opposed to each other, but yet they use the same tactics. So. Well, you know, unity is the uh, most dangerous enemy to a rising dictatorship. <clears throat> yep. The, the- just, just saying. And the whole point I was trying to make is like, think think about like 97's internet versus now. And, you know, oh, all, yeah. all this stuff was just dropped. Like no, nobody made a big deal. The, the hate, the hate speech and stuff had been around the whole, the entire, this entire time, but no one, the media yeah. didn't um, focus on it. Nobody, it, it was just, it was just like, yo, these guys are trolls, you know, and let's leave it at that. And it was, it was done. Yep. I mean, it really makes you think. I mean, if anybody does anything and, you know, he's like, you can just become universally hated for about three minutes. Oh, there's multiple TV shows about <laughs> this same topic. Internet yeah. ruined my life or, you know. <laughs> right. I need a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So we're, we're, uh, we're going to go to the guest. We've got Robert Guffey coming on. We're going to talk about his book, Camellio. Which is a book about uh, crowd, uh, was it uh, called stalking, uh, crowd stalking, and visibility cloaks, and heroin addiction, and all kinds of government and mind control shenanigans. So we will be right back, guys, with Robert Guffey on Conspiranormal. All right, guys, we're back on Conspiracy Normal, and we have the guest on the line. And this is a crazy story, to tell the least. Uh, we have Mr. Robert Guffey on, and we're going to talk about his book, Camellio, a strange but true story of invisible spies, heroin addiction, and homeland security. Mr. Guffey, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Thank you for having me on. Hey, thank you for coming on. Uh, I kind of want to go with your background first, like, you know, who, who you are, what you do, some of the books that you have written, uh, some of the subjects that, that you have covered, and that'll kind of help us to get into this crazy story that we're going to talk about. Okay. Um, I, the Camellio is my third book, and it just came out last year. Uh, I have two previous books. Uh, the first book was called Cryptoscatology, Conspiracy Theory as Art Form. That came out in 2012. And cryptoscatology is a word I made up. Uh, crypto is Latin for secret, and scatology means the study of um, uh, feces. I, I'm not sure what I can say and what I cannot say. So, <laughs> uh, it, uh, so I combined the two things together, and it's sort of a humorous word, uh, so, because that's that's what 
the it's it's sort of like my uh, field of specialty, uh, cryptoscatology, the study of secret feces. <laughs> yeah, and, when, when and, the feces hits the fan, right? Uh, absolutely, and with the, and so it is meant to be humorous, but at the same time, it's serious in the sense that basically it's studying uh, subject matter that's considered to be way beyond the fringe um, uh, subject matter that's sort of off the value grid of mainstream society. So that includes conspiracy theory, but it it can include other things as well that people consider to be uh, um, not worthy of one's attention. Uh, And so that was the first book in 2012. And then in 2014, I came out, I wrote a book called Spies and Saucers, which is actually fiction. It's a collection of three uh, novellas all set in the 1950s and they're all interconnected and though it's fiction it sort of touches on all these areas as well sometimes there's things that you know or suspect that you can't really prove so that's the perfect venue for fiction and the first story in that book in spies and saucers is called the fallen nun and it starts out with a uh, this dead nun falls out of the sky and lands in this guy's marijuana garden up in <laughs> Malibu. And the guy right. sees the dead nun in the marijuana garden and doesn't know what to do. Uh, and then, cause do you call the cops? Cause if you call the cops, you have to show them the marijuana garden <laughs> and the dead nun. And it gets complicated. And then FBI agents come and it, then it spirals out from there to being about smoking the reptilian skin of a dead alien. And that triggers time travel and, and interplanetary travel and all this other stuff. Uh, it's kind of a wild, psychedelic kind of science fiction uh, story. What are That's some, the second book. What are some of your influences on on your writing? Well, certainly uh, Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny, on the back of Camellio, uh, they, they compare it to Bukowski, Hunter S. Thompson, and Phil Dick. And I, I actually didn't write that. Um, which I was, or books wrote that. And I, I thought, oh, perfect, because uh, that's, that's true. That's very accurate. Um, when I was 18, I discovered Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and also at the same time, a book called AIDS, Inc. by John Rappaport. Yeah. John Rappaport is an investigative journalist, and he's written about conspiracy theories and a lot of other different things. And uh, he was nominated for a Pulitzer for for his reportage that he did for the LA Weekly back in the 80s. And his book on AIDS, Inc. was all about alternative views of where AIDS came from, AIDS is a biowarfare weapon, etc. And I read the two books, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and AIDS, Inc., simultaneously, back-to-back. And I thought to myself, it'd be really amazing if you could combine these two things, this investigative journalism about conspiracies, uh, political paranoia, et cetera, with the kind of gonzo narrative of, of fear and loathing. And in cryptoscatology, there's a chapter in there called The Thousand and One Nights with Ali, which is sort of like points in the direction of, of the style of Camellio. It's narrative. I guess you could say it's gonzo, but it also combines research. And, and Camellio is sort of like the culmination of my interest in that, of, of combining narrative with actual journalism, biography, autobiography, Camellio is sort of many different things, which yep. is appropriate given the subject matter of, of, of something that's chameleonic and, and that changes. Um, yeah, go, go ahead. Well, I wanted to ask you about, um, because there were some times when I was reading the book and I loved the book, by the way, was, Thank you. I, I, there were some times that I felt like, okay, is this all true? Or is it is it like fifty percent truth and fifty percent fiction? I mean, are is it 
is it a non a strictly nonfiction book? It, it it is absolutely strictly nonfiction. It that's generally the first question I'm asked is how much of this is true, yeah. and the the answer is it's 100% true. Um, uh, the only thing that's fiction about it is I changed some of the names. Sure. Um, the people who were public figures, like Richard Schellinger, I, I left, left his name the same. As you would have to, you know. Of course. Uh, otherwise, it would bear no weight. Um, and so, some people, I, I changed their name because it'd probably be safer legally to do that. For example, the, the NCIS woman who's harassing uh, my friend Damien. In the book, I call him Dion Fuller. He's told me he doesn't mind if I use his real name. His real name's Damien. And, and uh, the, the woman in there, uh, the NCIS woman, who kind of like kicks off the, the harassment, um, I, have, I have her real name. I have her contact information. I have her phone number. But I wasn't going to put that stuff in there. Uh, so, you know, for legal reasons. So I changed, uh, changed fictionalized her name. So that, that's the only thing about it that's fictional are, are the names. Um, the, the, it's funny because the, you know, the subtitle says a strange, but true story, but I think people are so used to being lied to that when they say, they see something that says a strange, but true story, immediately they think, what is this? Some sort of postmodern trick? Uh, Is this some sort of metafictional thing? What what is this? Uh, No, it's exactly what it says it is. It's a strange, but true story. When you go in the supermarket, you, you grab a can of peas and it says peas on it. When you open it, there's never lima beans in there or carrots. It's, there's always <laughs> peas in there. That, so it's, it's, that's what this labeled a strange, but true story. That's exactly what it is. There's, there's nothing but peas in here. Uh, it's, there's, absolutely honest advertising in, in, in that respect. But I can see why people would be sure. uh, suspicious. I mean, it is a crazy story. I'm oh, yeah. well aware of that. Well, let's get into that crazy story. And, and the first question that I have for you on that is how did you become involved with this? Well, uh, the, I remember the day exactly because it was July 12th, 2003. And I, I remember that was the day because that was the day that I went through the third degree of Freemasonry which I mentioned that at a, at a Blue Lodge in Torrance. I mentioned that because it's important right. later on in the story. Um, after I went through the third degree, I immediately got on the phone and called Damien. Uh, I've known Damien. I met him on my 16th birthday. So we've known each other a long time. Uh, and I called him. He's in San Diego. I was in Torrance. I called him to tell him that I'd gone through the, the third degree and I was still alive. Uh, and he, he, he didn't answer the phone. And so I left a message and generally he would call back within a day or two. He never called back and it went a whole week without him calling back, which is odd. Uh, after about seven days, he calls me and tells me this strange story that, um, at the time his house in Pacific beach was kind of a drug party house. People would come in and out all the time. And there was a kid and I say kid, I mean like in his early 20s, named Lee, who had recently gone AWOL from Camp Pendleton, though Damien did not know that. And when he went AWOL, um, he took with him a 9mm Iraqi gun, 23 pairs of high-tech night vision goggles, a DOD laptop computer, and a truck, uh, and brought some of this stuff into Damien's house without Damien knowing that. Uh, Lee had been crashing at his house for maybe two, three days. They're having a party one night. 
uh, Lee opens up the DoD computer, the laptop, and on the the screen forms this DoD symbol. And the second Damien sees that, he says, "Grab your LoJack stuff and get the, the hell out of here." And Lee says, "Don't don't worry about it. You know they can't track this." Stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh huh. Within <laughs> seconds of him turning on the computer. Literally, within seconds, there's a knock at the door. It's this woman who identifies herself as, in the book I call her, Lita Johnston uh, of the uh, NCIS, which in 2003, I hadn't even heard of the NCIS. I didn't even know it existed. You know, this was before the TV show and everything. Right. And, and she's there with these two, like, men in black goons behind her. And she says they need to search the premises. Uh, Damien, whose father was a narcotics cop, uh, he's well aware of his legal rights and tells them, you need a warrant. They say, well, we'll be right back. And Damien closes the door. He turns to everyone at the party and says, take your stuff and get out of here, meaning take your drugs and go out the back door. They all throw their drugs <laughs> on Damien's carpet and they go out the back door. Uh, within minutes, the NCIS is back with the, the, suddenly the San Diego police department is there too. Um, they were, they both came at the same time, but it was as if they weren't working together because they were kind of like bouncing off each other in the kind of keystone cop kind of way. Uh, they didn't care about the drugs at all. Didn't care about that. What they mainly wanted to know was where were these night vision goggles? That's what they cared about the most. Apparently, some of them were there in the house. Some, most were not. They arrest Damien and they arrest Lee. It turns out the guy's name isn't even really Lee. Apparently, they told Damien his real name was Doyle. In the book, I call him Lee slash Doyle because I never figured out. I don't know what his real name was. They arrest Damien and this kid Lee. They take him down to the San Diego jail downtown. They, they give Damien the Abu Ghraib treatment for about seven days. Uh, they want him to snitch on the other guy and to testify in court uh, that, that Lee had the stuff. They, Damien keeps insisting he doesn't even know anything about this. They, they, they keep accusing him of, of wanting to steal, uh, or rather sell this equipment to like Al Qaeda. Mm-hmm. Uh, Damien's trying to insist. I, I barely know this guy. Yeah. It, it, I mean, a classic like Kafka, uh, absurd comedy. Uh, and after about a week, uh, of Damien refusing to cooperate, refusing to snitch, Damien had been in and out of jail in prison his, his whole life. So he wasn't the guy who was going to just snitch on someone, uh, certainly when he didn't have to, uh, and certainly when he didn't know anything. Uh, and so after about a week, they, they abruptly let him go and he goes back home. He calls me, he tells me the whole story. And we both think, well, obviously, they, they figured out that, that Damien didn't know anything and decided to let him go. He doesn't have the uh, goggles, yeah. If he doesn't have anything. He doesn't know anything, obviously. Uh, but that, that was just the beginning of it, uh, because soon after that, a few days later, he calls me back, and he tells me there are these people following him around all over San Diego, all over Pacific Beach, military-looking guys, these jarhead-looking dudes, seven of them follow him into a 7-Eleven on Garnet Avenue, follow him back out again, being really obvious about it. It wasn't like they were trying to be spies and hiding behind newspapers. They, they wanted him to see that they were there. Uh, and they, he would go to a Mexican restaurant near his apartment. They would all come in and sit down around him wow. in the Mexican restaurant. 
Uh, I'm sure the, the Mexican restaurant was very happy about all this because they got a lot of new customers. Yeah, new every business. time he'd go in yeah. there, 15 people would come in and, and order as well. Uh, th- this was happening all over San Diego, un- unrelentless. And at first I thought that, well, maybe this is some sort of meth-induced paranoia. I don't know. This seems kind of strange. I I was already well familiar with the world of conspiracy theories because I'd been writing for Paranoia Magazine for, since 1996. Robert, uh, had he had, ex- had he exhibited anything beforehand that would that would have been that you would have said, well, this is just typical Damien? No, not not at all. In fact, uh, what, what was strange was that he was actually often rather skeptical of any kind of conspiracy theory that was a little too esoteric. Right. He could wrap okay. his mind around the kind of Watergate-level kind of corruption and conspiracy. His dad was a narcotics cop, so he was well familiar with the kind of corruption that can occur in law enforcement. Gotcha. Um, so he, he, he understood and appreciated that kind of thing. But if it was a little too weird, a little too bizarre, he was actually kind of really skeptical of it. Uh, so this, you know, until he got dumped in the middle of this, of this thing. Uh, and so, you know, it wouldn't, it, it was atypical of him to be saying this. Um, and I didn't quite believe it at first. Um, despite the fact that I did have this kind of background of knowing about, I was friends with Walter Boart, who Walter Boart wrote the, the, the key book about mind control back in 1977. Oh, really? Operation Mind Control. Uh, that was the first book to really expose MKUltra and give a really accurate uh, accounting of how deep mind control experiments had been in the American government going all the way back to World War II. And I had known Boar. I was friends with him. We actually collaborated on a, a screenplay. He Boar passed away in 2008. Uh, so I was familiar with, with mind control and all that. But in terms of this gang stalking thing of, of this this type of thing I was not familiar with and never heard of it. And so at first I was skeptical and I said, Damien, show me, you're saying there are these cars. He was saying there were the cars parked outside his house all the time, following him around town. I said, get photographs of those license plates, send them to me. He did that. And, uh, I, I print the list of license plates in the book. I took that list and sent it to a friend of mine up in Seattle who works for the DMV. And that guy ran all the plates and every single one of them came back as not officially existing, which didn't make any sense unless they were all government vehicles. There's, I can't think of any other reason why they wouldn't officially exist in the system, because I know they existed. He sent me the photographs. Uh, and so it, it, they could only be government vehicles surveilling him. So that was the first time where I thought, okay. And you also, knew, a- you also knew that he wasn't making it up. Because there was a rant, you he would have at least gotten one right. It was a random chance, but he got all of them right. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, if it was some sort of for some bizarre reason he was trying to hoax me, I don't know why yeah. he would do that. But if if he was, you're right. It wouldn't. Each one would not be officially non-existent. You know that doesn't make any sense. Uh, so then I I, I went on uh, the internet, and at that time the term gang stalking, which is quite prevalent now. Uh, to some degree, it, it, uh, that didn't even exist. The, the, the closest I could find to it was they were calling it street theater. And there was a woman named Raven One who had a site called Raven One.net, which is no longer there. 
there was a little essay she had written called All About Street Theater, which I, I put that in the book because everything that she described was exactly point by point, everything that Damien had been telling me about what was happening to him. Uh, and I thought, okay, uh, this is more confirmation. Uh, so the, 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 the things that he's describing to me get more and more peculiar. Uh, he's talking about electronic harassment, they're bombarding him with hallucinations. Um, at, at one point, he was uh, in his bedroom and he saw his leather jacket, which was on the floor, this, this black amorphous energy kind of crawled across the floor and filled up the leather jacket and the leather jacket crawled across the floor and then just dropped. Uh, <laughs> there was a silhouette of a, a shadowy hand holding a gun on the wall and then the shadow was sort of tilt down until the gun was pointed at his head where he was lying in bed and then tilt up again. Uh, he looked out the window one day and there was this, what should have been there, which was the parking lot, was no longer there. What was there now was this alien landscape, like out of a Boris Vallejo painting with three moons in the sky, <laughs> looking absolutely very realistic. And then when he opened the door, of course, it was just the parking lot. Kind of like the landscape of Tatooine from Star Wars with the two sons. Yeah, some, uh, some really like, you know, cheesy kind of like, uh, you know, sub Frank Frazetta painting uh outside and really kind of detailed um and so then then he starts telling me that there's people coming into his house who he cannot see but are physically interacting with him uh in other words invisible people in his house pushing him over um getting in his way moving things around at one point he goes into the bathroom and he is opening the medicine cabinet, which has the mirror on it. And as he's moving the mirror, he briefly can see these, quote, invisible people behind him. But, but only as the mirror was in motion was he able to see them. At one point, he could see them uh, as kind of like these little outline of, of dots, uh, kind of like um, auras, like what people see when they suffer from a really intense migraine headache. Uh, sometimes they see these auras in the air. It was like that, these auras, but but made up uh, as an outline of a very small person, which is where uh, Damien got the term invisible midget from. He's, uh, in his uh, uh, own brand of humor, he decided to call these people invisible midgets because they were small, but, they were, but, but you couldn't see them most of the time. Uh, that sounded really nuts as well, of course. Uh, however, the, when he told me about being able to see them in the mirror, there was something in the back of my mind that the, how that made sense to me in some way. I was thinking, well it was like light bending technology or something like that, it kind of makes sense that you'd be able to see it in the mirror, but not when it was standing in front of you. And Damien's not like a physicist or something. It's not something that he would generate out of his own brain. Yeah, if wouldn't he make it, it up. up. Yeah. Uh, and then also I, I should note that around Damien, where Damien is living at the time, there's a corporation called SAIC uh, and Science Applications International Corporation, which is no longer there. It's split into two companies and moved to Virginia. Uh, at the time, it was literally within walking distance of Damien's apartment. And then there was another corporation called ATC, American Technology Corporation. Both of these corporations specialized in creating esoteric weaponry, um, electromagnetic weaponry, um, acoustic bullets, uh, things like that. And the, the, both corporations were 
just just down the street of where Damien was. Now, at this time, so this would continue to happen every day. People parked outside, shining halogen lights through his windows at midnight, um, on and on and on. And then occasionally, the woman I mentioned, Lita Johnson, the special agent from NCIS, she would show up. One day she shows up at his back door with you know two more guys in tow. And she says, oh, how are you doing? Um, uh, is, is, have you changed your mind? Would you like to cooperate now? And, and then Damien would say, are you, are you following me? Are, are, you, are you doing all this? Oh, what are you talking about? What, is something happening? Like, it just really kind of classic, kind of condescending tone and, and, and threatening at the same time, but never really kind of overtly saying anything that would be considered a threat if he were recording it. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, then she, and then he would say, well, no, I've not, I can't cooperate because I don't know anything. So then she'd get in the car, they leave, and the second they left, the harassment would start up again, like, you know, tenfold. Huh. Uh, uh, and it was around that time where she had given him her card back when they first released him said, if you change your mind, you call this number. So she, uh, I asked Damien to give me the phone number. Uh, so I called her. And I called her partly just to see if she existed. I didn't, I didn't really doubt it, but I, I kind of like just wanted to know. Uh, I, I wanted to talk to her myself, you know. Uh, um, and so she answered the phone, and she seemed very flustered that I was calling her. Uh, and I asked her, I said, you know, my friend Damien claims he's being followed. Uh, is your agency following him? She proceeded to give me all these kind of CYA uh, sort of, um, language that, that, that uh, just trying to avoid giving me a direct answer. She would say, oh, uh, no, no one in my agency is currently following your friend probably a true statement. No one in her agency was following him. Right. You know, right. Uh, because the, the thing with the gang stalking thing is they don't, they don't use government, uh, employees. They go out and farm it out to, to civilians or ex, you know, retired military people, retired law enforcement people. So that was probably a true statement. I trans, I, I, I wrote down everything that she said to me and I put it in the book. It's around page 50 or so. Uh, and, and that I came away from that just even more convinced that it was, she even so told me, I asked her, I goes, it would be okay if, if Damien left town. And then she said, oh, well, legally he could leave town, but I wouldn't recommend it. It might make things difficult. And I was, make what difficult? Are you planning on charging him with anything? Oh, no, 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 no. He's not uh -huh. being charged with anything. Uh, so it, 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 it finally got to the point where he was, um, being bombarded with, electromagnetic energy to the point that he was uh, pissing blood and, and a, a, a constant metallic taste in the mouth, which I knew from Walter Bowart in Operation Mind Control is actually a common symptom of electromagnetic uh, radiation poisoning. So I, I uh, took it upon myself uh, because he, Damien told me that he had run into this uh, beachcomber down at the beach in, in San Diego who was trying to get rid of a, this black van that he owned. Uh, for 500 bucks, something like that. And so without Damien even knowing I was going to do this, I Western Unioned him uh, $500 so that he can buy the van and just pack up his stuff and leave. Because I, I figured, well, if he leaves town, it'll just stop. 
uh, this is something that m- most people assume, and it turns out not to be true, uh, but it seemed logical at the time. So I, I call him to tell him that I there's $500 waiting for you at Western Union. You should pick that up to go get the van. And, and he's immediately appreciative. And as you, if you, I don't know if you've ever sent anyone any money through Western Union, but you have to give them a code word so that they can pick up the money. So I'm about to give him the code word. And then Damien says, no, 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 don't give it to me now because he's concerned that some the people listening will hear the code word and then go and intercept the money before he can go and pick it up. So he goes, just wait until I'm done and ready to go and then give it to me. Uh, and I go, okay. So he, he packs up all his stuff and he calls me back so I can give him the code word. I'm about to give him the code word and then the line goes dead. And, okay. uh, then I, I, I call him back and I'm about to give him the code word. It goes dead again. It, this happens like six, seven times in a row. Jeez. Uh, and finally I figure out, I decide to place a collect call to his number and there's something that happens whenever you place a collect call to someone is that there's a brief moment when the operator is talking to the other person. The operator says, will you accept the charges? There's that brief moment where you can hear each other. Uh, so as the operator is saying, do you accept the charges? I just yelled out a, a hint, uh, a kind of por- a rather uh, pornographic hint that I can't even, I don't, I don't know if I can say <laughs> it on the air, so I won't. Uh, and I knew he would know what I meant. Uh, so he, he, he heard it. I heard him laugh and then it cut off like at, at, at that moment. So he was able to go to Western Union, pick, pick up the money and get the van. And he, uh, and, and he leaves, uh, he leaves town. And the second he leaves town, he calls me uh, from on the road to tell me that there's these little like circular kind of flying saucer things following him in the air, uh, following him around. <laughs> and this is before drones, or this is 2003, 2004. So this is like, this is before there are drones flying around getting shot out of the air but, uh, over Dodger Stadium. Right. Place. But we had I mean, they weren't even They were around, yeah, for sure. They, oh, they, oh, they were around, but it wasn't, it wasn't sort of part of our everyday yes. environment, yes. you know. Uh, and so these, these little things are fa- following him around. Um, he, uh, he goes all the way from San Diego to Texas. And then, and then from Texas, he goes to Minnesota because that's where uh, he he had um, a son there, uh, um, and and he was going to go and see him. And when he's he stops off in Minnesota at one point in a in a bathroom, and he goes in to 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 use the bathroom, and he's in the bathroom washing his hands, and a, a guy comes in, a total stranger. He's, the guy comes in and is washing his hands next to him. And the guy turns to him and says, if you just give all the stuff back, all this can stop. Uh, and it was, it was one of only two times where anyone sort of admitted to him that he was actually being followed. Because the whole point of it is to, to drive you crazy, to make you um, wonder if you're going insane or not. Sure. But, the, but, but this guy kind of broke protocol and came in. The way he said it, the tone of voice wasn't a threatening tone. It was more like a pleading tone. It was like, please give the stuff back so we can stop following you. It was, it was that type of, of vibe. Uh, Damien's kind of stunned at this. Before anything else can happen, a third guy comes in, grabs the second guy by the collar, and then like drags him out of the bathroom like, like he had broken protocol or done something he wasn't supposed to do. It's kind of like Keystone Cops kind of material. You know, it's just, it, it, 
there, there's, I mean, it's on one hand, very uh, sort of frightening. Uh, on the other hand, they also do really stupid stuff that's right. quite humorous at times. Well, let me ask uh, you I mean, this before you go on with that, uh, with the story, is why him? Why is he, why is he being targeted? I mean, we well, have the story about the goggles, but it's like it, it, it almost doesn't, it, it almost doesn't add up at all. Why target this guy? I, I think uh, the, the main reason what was happening, this becomes more clear later on when we meet Richard Schoenger, is that the two things were happening simultaneously. One, he pissed somebody off. He pissed off uh, the woman in the NCIS and her boss, who, who he met at one point and actually had lunch with. That's a whole other sidebar vignette. Uh, he, he, he royally pissed them off. And, and the thing is with the whole gang stalking thing is it can be as random as that. I mean, and sometimes it's, it's peace activists, people who are causing trouble, who are, very, who are obvious. It's obvious why they are targets. Other times, it's completely random. The target doesn't know why they've been chosen. They're just leading a quiet, normal, mundane life, and suddenly this begins. And one doesn't know how it starts for them. I mean, it's even crazier in, in those instances, because at least with, with, with Damien, we see a chain of events. We understand how he interacted with these people in the, in the first place. With some people, it's totally random. There's, you, you have no idea how it begins. So you can, be, you can be driving on the freeway. You accidentally cut off NCIS Special Agent Lita Johnson on the freeway, and suddenly now you're on the list as a suspected terrorist. It can be as, as petty as that. And there's a, a documented case of that is the, uh, the, the novelist Gloria Naylor, who, because this, this doesn't just happen to junkie freakazoids living in San Diego. Gloria <laughs> Naylor, the well-respected um, African-American uh, female novelist, uh, she wrote The Women of Brewster Place and um, Mama Day, many other novels and, 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 um, and short stories. And she was living on an island off the coast of, I believe, Maine, if I remember correctly. And she was living next door. She was staying in a house that was next door to a guy who had a brother in the NSA. And she uh, accidentally uh, poisoned the, the cat that was owned by the next door neighbor. And as a result of that, she suddenly, everything that I've, I've described to you that happened to Damien started happening to her. And she actually wrote a, a book about it, a, a kind of fictionalized account of what occurred to her called 1996, because that was the year this all started for her. But essentially the same um, level of harassment. And uh, so I think in, in, in Damien's case, A, he, he refused to cooperate. They didn't like that. And he's, not, he's not the most cooperative person in, in any case. <laughs> uh, and then, and two, uh, I think they needed a, a human guinea pig to test the camouflage technology on in real time. I, I presented this thesis to a friend of mine at the time when it was happening, and she said, why wouldn't they just test this st technology on the military base at Camp Pendleton? Why, why go off the base to test this stuff? And I said... It actually makes perfect sense that they wouldn't want to test it on the base because if you're using something that's experimental, you want to know if it's going to work in real time in a dangerous situation. You want to know when does that technology break down? When does the person, when does the target, when is he able to see the technology? When is he able to see that you're there? Because that could be a matter of life and death if you're using this camouflage technology in the Middle East. 
in Afghanistan, you know, uh, you want to know when that technology breaks down and so that you can fix it before you're in an actual situation with someone who has a gun who can shoot you because being invisible doesn't protect you from bullets, uh, being unarmed. I want to add too, Robert, I'm sure that you're familiar with this. I mean, there's a documentary that I watched and it was actually a, like CBS television did it like the later part of the seventies and it was about MK ultra. And they talked about how LSD was basically being used by the CIA and they were experimenting on prostitutes, on drug addicts and these people. And this is back in the fifties and in in the sixties that this was going on. And so you've got a very similar situation here with Damien, right? I mean, he's a drug addict. So who's going to believe him when he starts the, the, I guess the, I guess the thinking is who's going to believe him when he starts saying all this crazy stuff. Oh yeah. They like to target people who are on the fringes. Right. Uh, in, in acid dreams. Yeah. Like you said, prostitutes, they even used, they even hired prostitutes to lure in Johns and then they would use LSD aerosol, pump it into the room <laughs> and, uh, and then write down everything that happened to the guy for, through a, you know, a two way mirror you know, the CIA agents would be on the other side of the, the mirror and they'd write down everything that happened to this guy and how he reacted to the LSD aerosol that they pumped into the room. That's and crazy. They, they would lure him in with the, with the prostitute. Uh, and and uh, Jose Delgado, who was the kind of the godfather of mind control technology, he was a, a scientist in Madrid in Spain and he had done experiments. Uh, he first came to national prominence. I mean, there were newspaper articles about this all over the place about uh, he in, in Spain, he had uh, put implants into the brains of bulls. Keep in mind it's Spain, so the main symbol of machismo is bullfighting. Right. So he would get into the bull ring and then have this remote control device behind the red uh, the cape. Uh, and then he would make the bull walk back and forth by just pushing this button behind the red cape. And he made headlines with that. CIA sees that. They hire him. They bring him over to Yale University. They're immediately interested in that. And so he writes a book in 1969 called Physical Control of the Mind, where he lays out how they experimented on not just monkeys, not just bulls, where you see the, the photographs of them cracking open the skull of the monkey. They put the implant in, and then he could change. Uh, he could dilate one pupil and leave the other one unchanged you know, huh. from a distance. Uh, he could uh, stimulate orgasms from afar. Uh, he, and he did this on uh, mental patients. He talks about it in the book, you know, prisoners and mental patients he would do these experiments on. So, yeah, they, lo- they, love, they love to target people who are on the fringes, mental patients, retarded children. Uh, the, they did a lot of radiation experiments on retarded children. Uh, and, um, uh, again, people in insane asylums, you know, no one's going to listen to them when they complain about it. Right, and exactly. That, that, that was kind of rampant in San Diego. A lot, a lot of this stuff was happening to not just Damien, but other, yeah. other uh, junkies and drug users and, and, and p- people on the fringes in Pacific Beach. That's the one thing I was, another thing I was going to ask you about, why San Diego? And you have this, uh, you also talk about in the book, you talk about this guy that stole the tank from the San Diego uh, army base and was going on a rampage. And you kind of link that in with this activity. Oh yeah. When I was on uh, darkness radio, yeah. uh, he, I remember um, the host, uh, Dave, um, Dave Schrader. Schrader. 
Dick Schrader. He said, uh, he goes, how the heck could the guy steal a whole truck off a military base? And, and my answer is, well, <laughs> in the 1990s, a guy stole a whole tank uh, off a military base. Yeah. Uh, imagine that. And you can just go on YouTube, just punch in like uh, San Diego tank. And, you know, you'll see the footage of this guy. He stole the tank off the, the base and drove the tank all the way through the middle of town. Now, why this is significant is because the reason he was doing that, he was trying to get to City Hall and he was going to make some sort of a statement. And it's clear from the documentary that this uh, fellow made, this documentarian, he made a, a documentary called Cul-de-Sac. And it's clear when you're watching the documentary that the filmmakers themselves don't really know what they're what the story is. They, they think they're doing a story about San Diego being this military town that went into an economic downturn, and this is the effects on the people living in the town. When reality, in, in reality, there's sort of like a meta-level story about this exper- rampant experimentation that was clearly going on amidst this small group of junkies and drug addicts living in the same exact area that, uh, that Damien was living in. That guy, the guy who made the documentary, he ended up uh, dead under rather mysterious circumstances, which I, really? I mentioned. I mean, he was an experienced swimmer. He was ended up drowned in the swimming pool uh, in, in his 30s, I believe, after having just done another documentary about the war in the Middle East uh, and having won an award, like an independent filmmaker's award for it. Yeah, you know, we're talking about San Diego, and I mentioned this right before we started the, we started the show was, uh, you know, there was a guy, and um, Jason Russell, and he wrote this, I mean, he directed this video that became this big viral video in 2012 called Coney 2012. And he was going after the Lord's Liber, uh, it's like the Lord's Liberation Army or some, Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda. Joseph Coney is the leader of that. Okay, some horrible stuff that goes on with this child soldier stuff. But he... Later on, and this was in San Diego, was caught buck buck ass naked on the street corner, masturbating, talking to himself, and in a interview with um, Oprah that he did, he said that he basically was having this out of body experience, and I couldn't help but think about that when I'm listening. I've, I've listened to a couple other interviews with you. And one of the interviews that you were talking about, I all of a sudden made that connection. Wait a minute, you know, San Diego, weird behavior. You know, what if something's going on there? If if you ever hear a story about me being naked and masturbating in public, <laughs> let's assume it wasn't voluntary. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll hold you to that. Uh, uh, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I just posted something on uh, cryptoscatology.com, which is which is my website. It's a it's an excerpt from a book by Noam Chomsky, the the well respected, famous uh, linguist and political activist. He wrote a book in 1977 called Language and Responsibility, uh, and it's just interesting. I, I just want to read a few sentences from it. Sure. Uh, he wrote uh, in San Diego. The FBI financed, armed, and controlled an extreme right-wing group of former Minutemen, transforming it into something called the Secret Army Organization, specializing in terrorist acts of various kinds. I heard of this first from one of my former students, who was the target of an assassination attempt by the organization. 
In fact, he is the student who had organized the debate on economics that I told you about a little while ago when he was still a student at MIT. Now he was teaching at San Diego State College and was engaged in political activities, which incidentally were completely nonviolent, not that this is relevant. The head of the Secret Army Organization, a provocateur in the pay of the FBI, drove past his house and his companion fired shots into it, seriously wounding a young woman. The young man who was their target was not at home at the time. The weapon had been stolen by this FBI provocateur. According to the local branch of the ACLU, the gun was handed over the next day to the San Diego FBI Bureau, who hid it. And for six months, the FBI lied to the San Diego police about the incident. This affair did not become publicly known until later. And it goes on. And I posted the link uh, to that. But it's interesting finding these. There's a lot of stuff like that all centered around San Diego because it is such a militarized town. A lot of the people who live there are military, ex-military. Their their father was in the military. The the, the incident uh, that I briefly mentioned in, in, in the book, just skipping back a bit uh, in, in the narrative, there was one, one day where Damien was in the kitchen and there were these two jarhead guys outside clearly surveilling him and, and saying weird stuff. And so instead of ignoring them, Damien, uh, in the midst of making lunch, pulls out a, a bowl and starts throwing in a bunch of like flour and yeah. spaghetti <laughs> sauce and, uh, you know, jello, uh, peanut butter. And he's like, mixing it all together into this nice sticky goo and then Damien ran out and then tossed the bowl over the fence and it hit these two jarhead guys on the head so now they're covered in the slime they went running off in the parking lot trying to get it off them a, a couple of days later uh Damien agreed to meet with Lita Johnson and her boss at a bagel shop on Garnet Avenue and and the, Lita Johnson's trying to get information out of him about where these goggles are. Damien's trying to convince them, like, stop harassing me and I'll, I'll help you try to get the goggles back. Of course, they interpreted this as his attempt to somehow get money out of them for the goggles that he already had. When, when Damien was just trying to kind of like flailing around, trying to figure out some way to get them to just stop harassing him. Yeah. But they, they completely misinterpreted his intentions. But at it, one point, uh... Damien... Uh, Damien says to them, please, like whatever, whatever it is I need to do, I just, I want to stop having food fights with the feds. And, and at that moment, Lita Johnson laughed and said, oh yes, that was quite funny. So that was the other time where she actually admitted that, that they were watching him. But in the middle of that conversation, she said something that was really revealing, I think, about the mentality of these people. She starts telling him about how she had lived in this area, in this neighborhood since she was a girl and her father was in the military, and this used to be such a nice place to live. But now the neighborhood's filled with nothing but junkies and criminals and people you can't trust. Now, Damien has this kind of a candide-like quality about his personality where sometimes one could be insulting him, but he's not aware of it. He might like take it as a compliment. So she's clearly talking about Damien when she's talking about now that the neighborhood's just filled with junkies and criminals and people you can't trust. She's talking about Damien. <laughs> Damien's right. not getting that at all. And he says to her, I know exactly what you mean, man. These people, they just get on my nerves. <laughs> uh, and she's getting more and more angry that she's not getting that she's insulting him. But she, start, she starts going off in this rant about how you, we need to clean this place up. And, and make it, you know, what it once was, you know, in the 1950s, where everyone knew their place. Uh, and, and so that's, a, it's a, I think that comment is a kind of 
keyhole into their consciousness and what motivates them. They they wanna they wanna clean everything up, not just Pacific Beach, not just the neighborhood. They wanna clean up the country. Uh, yeah, and while we're at it, we'll do, while we're at it, we'll do experimentation on all the undesirable people that are out Absolutely. there. Absolutely, yeah. all, all these people who we don't agree with. You know, they're having too much fun. They're, they're doing things that we don't want them to be doing because you know we we secretly want to be doing that. You know, you know, Lita, Lita Johnson secretly wants to be doing heroin <laughs> and laying on the couch all day, uh, but she can't do that, so she's she's pissed off. And and instead, let's you know terrorize these people. Well, uh, let's talk. It about sounds what, simplistic, but I think that there's actually yeah. a component of that no, I, psychologically I, in it. Yes, I mean, th- I think there definitely is a superiority thing going on there. I think you're right, I, and and it can go back to even things like the eugenics movement in the 1920s. You know, the, oh, yeah. this this whole idea that you know that that crime is caused by a genetic malfunction. You know. Yes, they they're very puritanical. It seems to me of, of yeah. what I've seen. Yeah, exactly. I think you've hit a nail on the head there. A very important one as well. What happens with Damien after he is going on his cross country trek? Oh, okay. Uh, the, I, now, of course, I'm I'm sort of you know paraphrasing and, right. and cutting everything down. There's a lot of stuff in the that I'm I'm leaving out. But after the bathroom incident, after he runs into that guy in the bathroom, uh, Damien gets back into his. Van, which by the way is 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 absolutely not. There's nothing covert about the van. It's it's this black van that that <laughs> it sounds like uh, a rocket going off when you start up the engine. It's it should, I don't even know how it ran. When you get into the passenger seat, smoke would come up out of the the floor, uh, and then you couldn't open the passenger door unless the driver got out and then opened it for you. Uh, <laughs> There's a big hole in the floor, like like a Flintstones car. Uh, the, I mean, the whole thing was just falling apart. And then Damien had put all these stickers on it, like Thomas Jefferson stickers and uh, the big sign that said, uh, like, gaslit and loving it. Um, uh, just all this provocative stuff on the roof. And it's, 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 it, it, it was not covert in any way. It looked like a Punisher mobile from the old Punisher Marvel comic books. Uh, so he gets back into his van, and he drives to a little town called Winona, Kansas. Uh, if you look up Winona, Kansas on Wikipedia, you'll see that the population is like 102 people live in Winona, Kansas. Uh, on, on the way there, by the way, like right as he's getting into Winona, Kansas, his, car, his van breaks down, and these two good old boys pick him up off the side of the road and decide to help him and take him back to their place. And Damien tells these two guys everything that's happened to him up to this point. And they think it's all BS. So Damien gives them my name and tells them to, to call me. And I get a phone call out of the blue. It's like, you know, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night. And the phone rings and I pick it up. And this guy goes, goes you, you know Damien? I go, yeah. And he goes, he's right here. He's telling me this crazy story. Uh, are you Robert Guffey? I go, yeah. Uh, and then he, he want this guy wants me to confirm everything that Damien's told him. So I do. And I go, yeah, you know, all that's happening. I go, there are these drones following around these like flying saucer looking things. And, and as I'm saying that the two guys get, I hear them getting excited in the background and they're getting scared. They go outside and they open the door of their house and they see that there's this little robot flying saucer drone hovering outside their house that had followed them. (laughs) 
from the point where the van broke down and they they could they got their minds blown they couldn't they couldn't believe it they thought the apocalypse had come it was it was beautiful uh the, the uh they, those two so i because they now believe that in fact this is happening to damien i was able to convince them to like give him some gas and, and get him back on his way so he ends up in 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 winona and for some reason when he gets to winona the, the harassment kind of stops for like about the three months that he's there and i don't know if it had anything to do with the fact that the town was so small you know i mean how do you get away with a parade of people following you around in a town where there's only 102 people living in it uh you would notice a stranger coming to town and then there's like 50 billion people following him you know it's easier to get away with that stuff i think in like in la or new york or some major metropolis where no one's no one's paying any attention um also, I think everyone in Winona, Kansas is, is armed. So I don't think it's like a good idea to go in there with your invisibility suits yeah. and start harassing people. They'll shoot you dead uh, down there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and uh, so the harassment kind of waned for a little bit, and he was able to kind of like relax uh, to the extent that he was able to start doing he, – he got a job in a wheat silo somewhere and uh uh he was doing research on his own trying to figure out you know trying to make sense of all this uh and he was scouring around on the internet and he came across a website called projectcamelio.net and he'd been trying to find anything that looked like the invisibility technology that he had seen with his own eyes and uh he found there's this invisibility cloak that had been invented by this japanese inventor which had made the news that didn't look anything like what he had seen. It was kind of primitive. Finally, he, come, he comes across this, this, this website, projectcamelio.net, which is the website of a man named Richard Schoenger, who was a scientist. He has a, a top-secret clearance, or he did until just recently. He recently retired. Um, and Damien tells me to go look at it, because he goes, this sounds like what I experienced. So I'm looking at the website, and, and synchronicity plays like a huge incredible role in this whole story. Yeah. I'm looking at the website and I noticed that Richard Schoengert lives in Costa Mesa, which is near Long Beach. And he mentions that uh, he is a 33rd degree Scottish Rite Freemason at the Scottish Rite in Long Beach. I knew and, they were behind I, it. I knew they were behind <laughs> it the whole time. <laughs> and, and, and I'm a 32nd degree <laughs> Scottish Rite Mason in Long Beach. So I'm in the same lodge is this guy, but I don't know who he is. So I mean, apparently I've been in his presence, but I've never been formally introduced to this guy. So I, I email him and I say, I'm, I'm a writer. I've done all these interviews. Here are my credits. I'm, I'm, I'm a member of your lodge in, in Long Beach. And this Project Camellio thing sounds fascinating. Do you mind if I interview you about it? And he immediately writes back and says, sure, meet me at the I'm going to be doing the rituals this Saturday morning at the Scottish Rite. You, we can meet there, and then you can interview me. So Damien drives down from where he is, and me and Damien uh, pick up – I meet Richard. I realize that I had, in fact, seen him before. I had seen him performing rituals up, up on the stage of the Scottish Rite various times, um, and I, I recognized his voice, uh, but I had never been introduced to him. And so I introduce myself. I say, hi, I'm, I'm Robert Guffey, uh, and he seems like a very sort of venerable, nice person uh, with a kind of southern drawl. 
and and uh, he he seems very kind and 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 he says let's go out to lunch and then you can ask me whatever you want. So me and Damien take him out to lunch and then from lunch we take him back to my office on the campus of CSU Long Beach where I teach English. Uh, so in my office we sit down we interview him for about two and a half hours and I had no idea where this was going to go. It could be that this was not going to go anywhere. That nothing that Richard was going to tell me was going to tie in to Damien's experience. And I was fully prepared for that, that this may be just a waste of time. But within about 20 minutes, everything that comes out of Richard's mouth absolutely aligns with everything that had occurred to Damien up to that point. He, without us, at this point, we haven't mentioned anything about what has happened to to Damien. He doesn't know anything about Damien. He starts telling us about how SAIC, the, the corporation I mentioned earlier that was located within blocks of Damien's apartment had come to see him 10 years earlier, that the U.S. Navy had come to see him 10 years earlier, that they were very interested in his project and his camouflage because they had this, this future soldier program they were working on. They, they talked, they, Richard took him to his laboratory, uh, which is owned by um, – a, a physicist named Dr. Lev Berger, who's, who's an eminent physicist. He's a real guy. I, I visited the laboratory myself. It's, it's the base in Hemet in the middle of nowhere. And uh, l- there's pictures on Lev Berger's wall. That's Lev Berger is, is, is Richard's partner in the Project Camellio. Photos of Lev Berger shaking hands with Rich, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. Okay. And, yeah. and uh, so the Navy went out to the laboratory and SAIC, and they expressed interest. And Richard thought, oh, they're going to fund the project. We're going to work together. They just disappeared. And before we even said anything about it, Richard told us that he thought that they were kind of like vacuum cleaners, intelligence parlance for someone who comes in, pretends they want to sort of cooperate and work with you, and instead they're just sucking knowledge out of your brain like a vacuum cleaner. Right. And so he had actually initiated a FOIA request and was wanting to sue uh, the the military for stealing the his technology. He, he mentions this before we even get to anything. Uh, finally, after about talking to him for like an hour or so, I turn to Damien and I say, Damien, you tell him your story. And he proceeds to tell Richard the story. At first, Richard is listening to all this, looking a little like, what, what, what is this? And then when, when Damien got to the part where he mentioned seeing the invisible people in the mirror, while it was in motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, like, Richard leaned forward and he said, oh, yes, yes. He was that, that, that's exactly how it works because they, 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 were, they were cloaking the suit but not the mirror. And then, and then when Damien, particularly when Damien mentioned that sometimes, occasionally, he could see a kind of human outline in the form of these auras, which I mentioned earlier, Richard, that Richard, he really leaned forward at that moment. He goes, "That's exactly what it looks like when the technology is not working correctly. When they're, wow. when they're not, <laughs> when they haven't created it perfectly, that's exactly what it looks yeah. like." And when he heard that, he was totally on board and convinced of everything that Damien said after that point. That had to be no way for for Damien too. I mean, that had to be a vindication of just like I'm not going crazy. This is a real it, thing. It was a great relief. I think it was also a little scary. I think psychologically, he sure. Was, holding on to the hope that he was going nuts because <laughs> yeah. that would be much tidier, a, a much easier story to, to swallow, uh, to, to deal with. It's, it's the, the opposite that, 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 it, that he's not going crazy is far more disturbing actually. 
and and but so he yes he did you know on some level feel t- totally vindicated because here's this the scientist explaining exactly in scientific terms how this stuff works um and 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 uh the way that it works is that essentially the way that that Schoenger described it is that it's it's essentially a a kind of fabric that's covered with like thousands of uh tiny cells like um, te- television cameras and and they can they pick up images from from all around them and then the the wires carry those images to other cells that uh that work like uh, television receivers and so anything between them seems to be invisible uh and and that's essentially you know how the technology works in sort of just layman's terms uh and and uh at the end of it richard richard was the one who actually said it sounds to me like you were a guinea pig. You know, you were the perfect person, uh, in, in the wrong place at the wrong time, to be the guinea pig for this technology. They could they could experiment on you, see how it would break down in real time in real life situations, and then no one's going to believe you because you know you're a heroin addict, uh, ex-con, living in, in Pacific Beach. But of course, what they didn't realize is that Damien's best friend that he'd known since high school was a 32nd degree Freemason in the same lodge as the guy <laughs> from whom they stole the technology, which is just mind-blowing. You, no one could predict that. No level of control could predict that level yeah. of synchronicity. It's, yeah, it's, it's actually quite optimistic. There, there's, there's, yeah, go on. Well, I was going to ask you, has, the, has he, the doctor, has he pursued any kind of legal means to to say... I think that you guys are stealing my technology and please stop. He's, he's attempted to do that. Unfortunately, the, as, as any attorney will tell you, it's impossible to sue the military yeah. <laughs> for, for anything. Right. Uh, and, and essentially the reason being, particularly in this case, we're talking about a, a, an invention is that you have to be able to prove that, that they did not invent the technology on their own. They took it from you. And how do you prove that without documentation? All the documentation is top secret or above top secret. So what you need is someone on the inside to tell you, uh, initiate a FOIA request and ask for this exact file number. And, and, and if they did that, you'd be able to get that exact file number and, and use that uh, against them. But barring that, they they can think up any reason in the world why they shouldn't have to give it to you. You know, I'm so utterly amazed by just the the technology that we have now. I mean, that's that's some crazy technology when you think about it. Well, that's that's what oh, I was yeah. going to bring up. There was um, I saw a documentary. It was probably five or six years ago, at least, where they were doing that kind of cloaking technology with fabric. But you you know you'd have to have like two pieces of it lined up perfectly and looking at it at the right angle for it to work. But if we have that and we know about that and that's just out there for anyone to grab, then the government's got to be at least a decade or more ahead because they always are. Right. Oh, as 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 May Brussel, the eminent queen of conspiracies, like to say, the the, the military is always about fifteen to twenty years ahead of the private sector. So whatever you're hearing about in the private sector. Is, is, you know, really the past. Right. And that was the uh, and, point I was bringing up about the drones. It was like, we had them at that time and we probably sure. had them in the 1980s, you know, yeah, and, and that's probably what people were seeing out in area 51 or whatever. And it was just, you know, there was just a cover story to say, you know, they were UFOs, but we had that technology that was there. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, there's a there's actually kind of an odd UFO connection to uh, to the technology itself, in the sense that um, this, are you familiar with Nexus Magazine? No. Um, Nexus Magazine is a magazine that comes out of uh, New Zealand, Australia. It's 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 sold here. Uh, you can find it at Barnes and Noble. It deals with esoteric subjects, uh, you know, conspiracies, paranormal, etc. And I recently did a follow-up interview with with Richard Schoengert, sitting in his in his uh, backyard in in Costa Mesa, and uh, I just focused entirely on his research and what inspired him to pursue the invisibility technology. So I know he has a, an intense interest in, he's a Rosicrucian and he's a Freemason. So I know he's very much interested in mysticism and hermeticism. And so the entire interview just focuses on how his interest in hermeticism and secret societies, uh, how that led to him initiating Project Camellio in the 1980s. And so if it's in this month's issue of Nexus magazine, really? uh, the, June, the June-July issue. Uh, I think it should be on the newsstands now. If not now, it'll be there in like in a few weeks. And so he he goes into the fact that as a Rosicrucian, and he 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 was initiated into the Rosicrucians on the island of Guam back in the 50s. Uh, hmm. That the Rosicrucians claim that if you get up to a certain level, that you can actually make yourself invisible to other people through a, a kind of form of hypnotism or an attitude that you have that makes you. Uh, unseen. And this fa- this idea fascinated Schoengert. So he started thinking, well, how could you do that technologically? And also, in the 60s, he started to get into heavily into UFOs um, and, and noticed that they often report that these craft can cloak themselves and, and suddenly disappear. And that, that also fed into his interest. Well, how, how are they doing that? Um, so he, this was like an attempt to back engineer, uh, witness reports of, of UFO sightings. And, and that eventually leads to Project Camellio. He goes into this in in much greater detail in the interview, but yeah, that's this, this month's issue of Nexus, the, the June, July issue. You might want to, you know, look out for it. That's very cool. There was also a connection too with, 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 uh, with movies because he had somebody, uh, trying to call him to be a part of a movie, and it ended up being the first G.I. Joe movie. Yeah, yes, uh, the the woman whose whose name I do use in the book contacted me and said that she had read my interview with, with Richard, um, which was an excerpt from the transcript that appears in the book. A small excerpt of that appeared in UFO magazine uh, back around 2007. And the reason I wanted it in UFO magazine was because I realized what this technology could do. Um, for example, a lot of abductees, alien abductees, report uh, p- people coming into their rooms, uh, invisible people. Um, and, you know, Damien told me on many occasions that if he didn't know what was happening, he might have thought he was being abducted by aliens on, yeah. on several occasions. Yeah. Like, that's how bizarre it was. Absolutely. So that begins, that makes you wonder, well, you know, what, how many of these cases are actually... Yes. Alien abductions, or are they covers for something else? Well, not to go uh, too much on a tangent there, Robert, yeah. but but I, I I really think that the Betty and Barney Hill case, and you mentioned um, people being targeted for political reasons. Well, they were they were civil rights workers. I mean, they would have and a, and an interracial couple in the early 1960s. They were ripe for something like this to be done to them. Oh, uh, absolutely, yes. 
and uh, if you go back and look at that case, they they even uh, described the aliens as looking like they were wearing Nazi uniforms or yes. military uniforms. It's very suggestive. I, I, I think that there's a guy named Martin Cannon who wrote a book back in the 90s called The Controllers, which was essentially uh, about this. And I remember talking to Walter Boart about it. And what Boart told me was his, his belief was that this does explain certain um, alien abduction phenomena, but that it may not explain the entire uh, phenomenon. Yeah, and in, yeah. in fact, uh, Jacques Vallée wrote a book called Messengers of Deception mm-hmm. back in the 70s. And there's a section in that book where Vallée talks about meeting with a military officer who leads him into his li- personal library in his home. And he pulls out a book from the library, from his, his personal library. He pulls out Operation Mind Control by Walter Boart. And he says, you know, in this book is you'll find a lot of answers to the UFO question. <laughs> uh, so that guy was clearly trying to tell Jacques Vallée something. You know, you, you should look uh, down this route. Well, uh, here's, another, here's another connection to the Betty and Barney Hill case. Uh, the, the, the author of The Interrupted Journey that I, I can't remember his name right now. Uh, John Fuller. John Fuller, yeah. He wrote a book about the town in France that experienced this quote-unquote ergot poisoning that apparently Frank Olson and a few other of the guys in MK Ultra were that there's been a lot of speculation that that was some kind of a test. So here you have the guy writing a book about a supposed MK Ultra test and then writing the book about Betty and Barney Hill. That's a very interesting connection. I, I didn't know. I didn't know uh, that he had written a book about that. Yes. I, I mentioned that test in um, a chapter in Cryptoscatology. Um, there's an excellent book about it um, uh, called A Terrible Mistake. Uh, the name of the author um, escapes me at the moment. Uh, but yeah, the, it's a very large book uh, about Frank Olson called A Terrible Mistake. Uh, it was published by Trine Day. Uh, that, that's that, that's uh, worth looking into. Yeah, that, also, uh, um, you know, there's uh, the MyLab phenomenon, which is an acronym for military abduction, which means people who are abducted by aliens and then later on claim that they're re-abducted by members of the military who then interrogate them relentlessly, wanting to know what they observed on the alien craft. How did it run? Did you sit in the pilot seat? What did the controls <laughs> look like? You know, they're all gearheads. They all want to know how everything runs, you know. Uh, and and the, the, these people, the MyLab people, uh, claim that the re-abductions by the, the humans are far more horrendous and, and nightmarish and torturous than the original abductions by the aliens, <laughs> which, which is, uh, says a lot uh, right there. Uh, but uh, one of these uh, MyLabs is named Melinda Leslie, and I mentioned her in the the near the end of the book, because I had lunch with her one day, and I'm telling her all of this about Damien's story. And I mentioned that he was in San Diego. And, me, and without me saying anything, she immediately goes, oh, was, was he next to, was SAIC involved in this? Uh, uh, you, you know, which is, most people don't know what SAIC is. Uh, they've never heard of it, right? Uh, and she immediately just busts out with that. And I said, yes, yeah, the SAIC appears to be involved in this because they, they were the ones who originally approached Richard Schoengert and, and their, their uh, building is just you know, blocks away from Damien's apartment. And then I go, how did you know that? And she said, well, researching the MyLab phenomenon, that corporation just comes up over and over again 
in researching all these my labs and, and people who were abducted by supposedly by aliens. So that's that's suggestive as well. It is. And I want to ask you too about this technology that's being done because not only did he have this weird invisibility stuff, it's obvious that he had some kind of effect from EMF, like the hallucinations and which EMF does make you hallucinate if you're around enough of it and seeing the weird projections or whatever they were from the window and all these kind of things, you know, I'm reminded of, and you brought this up in another interview, uh, you, you talked about, you talked about the guy in Kalamazoo, Michigan, just recently that shot those six people and said that the Uber app was controlling him. And then you have the guy who shot up the Navy yard about three years ago are in DC that that had elf on his yes. gun yes uh yeah his his name was uh it was an Aaron Alexis yeah i believe and he had carved the words elf the the letters elf into the the gun uh which which of course clearly means uh, you know electromagnetic frequency uh the 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 amount of uh, the mass shooters who are involved in this type of thing are it's it's staggering um people who are either appear to be um, victims of electromagnetic radiation, victims of mind control. I mean, it, it, this is actually a propitious day that we're speaking. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but today is June 5th, which is the anniversary of the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Uh, he was shot a few you're minutes right. after yes. midnight on June 5th by Sirhan Sirhan. And there's, you know, there's every indication that Sirhan Sirhan was uh, mind controlled, uh, hypnotized, uh, when when he shot Robert Kennedy, so this type of thing goes, you know, at least uh, as far back as as the 1960s, and and probably even further into the past. I was I mentioned earlier that a huge influence on me was uh, on my writing, both both fiction and nonfiction, was Philip K. Dick, and uh, Tessa Dick, who's Phil Dick's widow, interviewed me about Camellio even before the book. Uh, was published because I'd written a, a short article in Fortean Times called Strange Tales of Homeland Security around about 2013. And I appeared on her radio show, which is called Ancient of Days. And she interviewed me about about all of this. And when I was telling her the whole story about Damien, she confirmed that everything I was saying sounded exactly like what had happened to Phil Dick and her in the 70s in, in Santa Ana. Uh, same types of things. Um, one, one of the things I mentioned in Camellia was that everyone in Damien's apartment building moved out and new people moved in. They're bringing in like weird equipment in and, and uh, it was clear so that suddenly weird. the whole place uh, was filled with these gang stalkers who were simply there to surveil Damien. When he finally moved, when he got into the van and moved and told his landlord he was leaving, the landlord looked completely relieved <laughs> it was like thank, thank God you're leaving. You know, it was um, clear that that this was stressing him out as much as it was stressing out uh, Damien. But the, the all everything that happened with Phil Dick, which he writes about in his novel Dallas in 1981, uh, which is sort of half fiction, half nonfiction, uh, everything that Phil Dick describes, the, the kind of harassment that was happening to him, very much sounds like electromagnetic radiation, all this other kind of uh, uh, gang stalking kind of stuff. And Phil Dick was, you know, a political activist and he was, he was saying very, you know, radical things. His apartment got broken into, 
Uh, it could very well be that the, they were broken into by the plumbers, uh, which I mentioned in, in Camellio, the E. Howard Hunt, G. Gore and Liddy, you know, squad working for Richard Nixon. Well, a lot uh, of those guys were driven crazy. I mean, I mean, Abby Hoffman was driven completely underground by like COINTELPRO. I mean, he was a rast too. Oh yeah. Well, they you know um, E. Howard Hunt and, and Liddy tried to kill Jack Anderson, the investigative uh, journalist. Yep. Uh, by putting LSD on the steering wheel, and he was supposed to then <laughs> the God. LSD was supposed to go through the pores of his skin. And he was supposed to drive off a bridge. <laughs> um, uh, it's it's pretty you know, um, it's on one level it's extremely depressing, but uh, at the same level you kind of have to maintain a kind of dark sense of humor about it. Yeah. You know, um, I. You know, I, I mentioned in the book that uh, I think one of the reasons that Damien kind of survived all this, and I think they were really stunned by Damien's capacity to withstand pain, which was something that he had kind of schooled himself in since high school uh, as being a, a veteran drug user. That, I mean, Damien's, I'm 6'1", Damien's probably about 5'6", maybe, and I've seen him consume so much alcohol and not really show any effect from it. Uh, it's it's quite it's quite amazing. And, and I think in a we way, all know guys like, like that. <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of the perfect guinea pig for all yeah. this because he really had spent a life. He spent his entire life practicing withstanding pain and and trauma of, of all different kinds. Uh, and and so my job through the whole thing was really just to try to keep it light and try to joke with him about it. Uh, because you know, so I, I, we can't really know how many people have been driven to suicide, uh, by this kind of harassment. If you were completely isolated, totally alone and no one to talk to about this and everyone thought you were crazy, uh, I could see how this would lead you to, to kill yourself. And, and Damien got the sense that that was sort of the goal that, the, the behind the scenes, they were kind of like, you could imagine them sort of gambling on it. Oh, what, what? How how long is it going to take for him to off himself? Um, uh, it's it's it's. Um, I, I really didn't even want to write the book. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I, I I mean, yeah, you can tell the book takes place in two thousand three, two thousand four. It I didn't write it until at this point I can't even remember. Like twenty twelve, summer of twenty twelve. I think I wrote it, and then it was published in twenty fifteen. So that's a, a long gap of time between 2004 and when I sat down to write it. And the reason being that I kind of wanted to forget about it to a certain extent because the whole thing had kind of driven me a little paranoid as well. Sure. Uh, you, you had and, incidents as well yourself. I mean, you had somebody that uh, you got invited to lunch with that basically you, you, you would describe as a spook, really. Oh, yeah. It's hard to really interpret it in any other way. Uh, I mean – I suppose there's a possibility where it was completely innocent, but uh, what had happened was just the day before, Damien had been staying at my apartment in Long Beach, and he told he warned me. He said, if, if anyone just comes out of the blue you've never met before, and they start asking you weird questions about me or about high school or whatever, or about San Diego, just, you know, be careful. And I thought he was being kind of overly cautious. The next day, my friend, uh, uh, her name's Sharon, and I had met her. She had been a student of mine in my very first semester teaching. And we, we remained friends. And she was in town from New York. 
and we were going to meet and go to lunch. So she uh, calls me to say, I just hopped on the Passport D, which is a bus in Long Beach, and it's going to drop me off right on the corner. And you meet me there, and we'll go to lunch. Okay. So, so in, in between there, she tells me how as she gets on the bus, and as she's on the bus, another guy approaches her and starts talking to her. And he somehow invites himself to this lunch and then, and then asks if he could take her and me out to lunch with him at this very expensive restaurant. Mm-hmm. I mean, we weren't even dressed for it. And, and, and he, uh, I can understand why he'd want to take her out to lunch. I don't, I don't know why he'd want to take her and me out to lunch. That, that, I don't understand that. And so he, he, offered, he claims that he's a uh, dock worker down at the docks in Long Beach. He shakes my hand. He's got like just soft hands, like he's, you know, he's like never worked a day in his life. He's got like manicured fingernails, uh, uh, and and takes us to this restaurant, and he claims he knows the maitre d. As we're waiting uh, to go in, uh, Sharon goes off to make a phone call. Now, now we're, me and this guy are alone together. He immediately turns to me. And he goes, "Have you ever heard of a book called uh, Behold a Pale Horse' by Milton William Cooper?" Yeah. Uh, Behold the Pale Horse. Is any like anyone who's into conspiracies knows that Behold the Pale Horse well, is I, like. You know, I know it well. Yeah, I have my copy. The, the, the mother of all conspiracy yeah. books. But Everybody's got to have that it, book. <laughs> absolutely, it's a key text, right? Yeah. So now, now, anyone who's into conspiracies, just that I've met, they always call him Bill Cooper. Bill Cooper. That's just you right. always call him Bill Cooper or William Cooper. If you but you notice on the on the book it says Milton William Cooper. So he, he says to me, have you ever heard of Milton William Cooper, which is kind of like a baseball fan calling Babe Ruth by his real name. Uh, and so I thought that was kind of weird. And then, then he starts asking me, he goes, he goes, uh, don't you think, you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in this country. Don't you think maybe we need a revolution in this country? Don't you think, what do you think of George Bush? I hate that guy. Don't you think we need to, someone needs to take him out? You know, uh, uh, someone needs to assassinate that guy. And, and, and I'm sitting there going, what, what is this? You know, uh, I, I just, I just keep deflecting all of his leading, uh, questions. I, I keep saying, Oh no, I love George Bush. Fantastic. I think the country's in great state. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd vote for Bush again. And he's, he's getting confused. You know, he's talking about the, the Masonic conspiracies and behold a pale horse. And apparently it wasn't in the file that I was a 32nd degree Freemason. So I go, oh yeah, I, I don't really have a problem with that. I'm a Mason myself. He seemed kind of surprised. I guess they didn't tell him about that. Short-circuited you know? so, him, yeah. Uh, he, he couldn't go. That's, that's something I've noticed with these people. They can't go with the flow. Right. It's a well, script. Once, once they get off the script, they don't know. They're not very good improv. improv uh, they're not masters of improv in any way. They just they, they tell them how to behave. And then if something goes awry, they don't know what to do. Like, in the book where I mentioned the fact that it's clear that they're told not to interact with the target. And at one point this guy's following Damien around. So Damien goes into like an AM PM and gets like a 32 ounce of blue raspberry slushy or something and turns around and throws the blue raspberry slushy into this military jarhead looking dude's face and then says faggot. Now generally any like healthy red blooded American after having blue raspberry slushy thrown in their face and being called the faggot would generally react negatively to that. The guy does nothing. He's just staring at him with you know with vacant eyes, not knowing what to do. I'm sure he wants to strangle Damien, but he's been told not to. So he just acts like it never happened. And Damien just keeps walking and then the guy keeps following him. <laughs> uh it's it's uh it's 
as I said, it's 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 a, a gigantic epic dark comedy uh, at at its heart. That incident with the guy in the in the restaurant uh, reminded me, and, and this could be nothing, but it just it little thing. You start thinking of little things, and you're just like, "Am I paranoid or what?" But there, a friend of mine told me, and I was actually with him when this happened, but I wasn't. I was in another part of the of the bar. We were in a bar uh, July of 2001, okay, two months before 9-11. And yeah. he's just talking to this guy, this older guy, and this guy just keeps talking about how we need a war in this country to set things straight and all this kind of weird stuff. And and, and he was – he was my friend was always just like – thought that was just so strange. And like two months later, we get 9-11. And – when I heard your stuff and I read that in your book, I was just like, what if there is something strange like that going on? Well, it seems to be the case. You mentioned right at the beginning, you mentioned Columbine. Yeah. And there, there's something that just keep this in mind when the next mass shooting happens. Uh, uh, and, and this is something I've noticed in almost every case. And you have to be listening to the news, the raw reports as it's happening. Because it's not something you're going to pick up on like later on. If you're listening to the like yes. radio reports coming out of like the local media, wherever the incident is occurring, with Columbine, and I mentioned this in cryptoscatology, all the early reports, all the students said that there were three people on site. There was there was Dylan Klebold, uh, the other dude whose name escapes me, uh, and and the third guy, uh, Eric Harris. The, Eric Harris. Yep. So Eric Harris and Dylan were both all dressed in black trench coats. There was a third guy wearing a white T-shirt and, like, blue jeans. Uh, and uh, multiple people said there were three people. Then they shoot themselves in the library, and suddenly the story is, no, there's only these two people. That's it. There was never a third person. And I, I write in cryptozoology, I was watching CNN as one of the students was coming out of the school, still spattered with blood, and the interviewer kind of sticks a microphone in their face. Oh, what, you, um, uh, what, what did you see? Well, I saw three men, uh, two dressed in black and one guy wearing a white T-shirt. But I guess I was wrong because I heard on the radio there was only two people. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, we have noticed this ourselves. Yeah. We have noticed it ourselves. I call it the disappearing third man uh, uh, phenomenon because San Bernardino just recently yeah, was the same way. People said we saw three people, yeah. two men and a woman. We saw three people. And then the third person is gone, and they even said the cops were looking for the third person. And then they say, yeah, it was just the man and his wife. Absolutely. Same thing with, um, we mentioned Robert Kennedy before, with Sirhan Sirhan. The reports were that instead of, instead of three becoming two, this is two becoming one. Right. That Sirhan the whole night had been with this woman in a polka dot dress, uh, and that she had been kind of leading him around everywhere. And multiple people saw this. And in fact, there's a, an excellent radio documentary um, called The Assassination of Robert Kennedy uh, that I heard on KPFK many years ago. I wonder if it's on YouTube. I've never looked. But uh, you, in the documentary, they play the raw tape of the interrogation of this woman who, who was at first sticking to her story. I saw this woman in a polka dot dress. They ran down the stairwell. Uh, uh, you know, I, I saw them. I interacted with them. And and the the cop for for hours just just tears into this woman, breaks her down, breaks her down, breaks her down, till finally by the end of it she's in tears. 
she's apologizing for having made up the story, even though it's clear that she's not made up the story. And they eventually convince her to to apologize to the Candy family for for making everything so messy and making up this this polka dot woman in a polka dot dress to, to get attention, even though it's clear that that's not what she was doing. And you see over the course of, of several hours how they just turn, they turn reality around in this poor woman's mind. Uh, and she wasn't the only one who saw the woman. There were many other people who saw the woman in the polka dot dress. So that's another case of the handler disappearing you know, into the night. Yeah, it seems to happen a lot. Um, uh, we talk about Columbine, but Sandy Hook is another one. Um, that's, you know, the, the, supposedly the guy that's being put in the car saying, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And you never hear anything about him. Uh, the police, the, the, uh, the Sandy hook police running, uh, behind the school with their arms, with their, their guns drawn. Um, you know, I mean, in, uh, Ila Vista shooting, the Elliot Rogers shooting, people said, we saw two guys in the car. I mean, it, it, it goes on and on and on with this stuff. Yeah, well, you know, how many times does the same thing have to happen until <laughs> someone you know notices this? I there, there's a a book that I read recently uh, by Jim Steinmeier, who's a, he's a magician, a stage magician, and he wrote a book called Hiding the Elephant: How Magicians Invented the Impossible and Learned to Disappear. Uh, it's actually a fascinating book to read if you're researching this type of stuff, because Jim Steinmeier is not interested in conspiracy theories; he's just a stage magician. Sure. But but if you read this book about the history of stage magic and how to manipulate an audience, get them to think that an elephant just disappeared, for example. If you read the book in that frame of mind, thinking about everything that we're discussing, it's it's actually one of the best books about conspiracies I've ever read, <laughs> uh, even though ostensibly it's not about conspiracies at all. Because uh, he, he goes into uh, basically about human psychology, uh, distractions, how to create distractions, uh, how to make someone think that one thing is happening when in fact something else is happening. Uh, the, 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 the consistent trick of the waving the red handkerchief in the air distract everyone while something else is happening. Uh, I mean, that, that's with, with Sirhan Sirhan, when they found him, in his, in his pocket they found a newspaper article that had been folded up neatly and placed in there about Robert Kennedy's um, support of Israel over Palestine. So that was the motive, and they literally pinned it to his shirt so that no one could miss this, you know. Uh, or in the case of, of 9-11, which I remember hearing this on the news the day it happened, that, that apparently one of the terrorist suitcases had gone awry and had been sent accidentally, instead of being put on the plane, had been sent to an airport in Texas, and they opened the suitcase, and it was filled with nothing but copies of the Koran. <laughs> I had heard uh, that there was a car with nothing but Islamic literature sitting at the, uh, at the Boston airport. That was the one that right. I remember hearing. Yeah, well, there were, there yeah. were, there were multiple uh, versions. You know, uh, what, what, what was the, uh, the, the plane that went down uh, uh, the, the, where supposedly the, the passengers took flight over. Flight 93. Uh, flight 93. Yeah. Uh, supposedly they found, you know, one of the, the IDs uh, of the terrorists. You oh, know, yeah. Uh, We've talked about that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, these, these kinds of things. Um, or I, I think it was also the Flight 93 where um, I, I can't remember the name of the passenger, but supposedly he called his mother on the cell phone uh -huh. and he 
uh, there's the recording of him. I did, he's, hi, Mom, this is Dick Smith. Mark you know, Bingham, of, hi, Mom, this is Mark Bingham. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Every, everyone does that, right? You know, hi, Mom, this is Robert Guthrie. You use you know, your first and last name when you talk to your mom. Yeah, and then, of course, you would think, well, why would, how could anyone t- to, could pull off something as amazing as this, do something as stupid as that? <laughs> well, I, I don't. I don't necessarily think it is stupid. It's <laughs> it's stage magic, you know. It's 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 raving the red red handkerchief in the air yeah. while while you're pulling the the rabbit out of the hat. It, it, it no one's going to notice uh, these little details. Robert, before we let you go, there's a story I want to ask you, um, and this is kind of this is one of the weirdest stories in Camellio. Uh, I think it's you relate a story of a friend of Damien's that. Uh, uh, saw some kind of weird DARPA project involving apes. Yes, a- absolutely. Uh, I, I, I'm glad you asked me that. <laughs> there's there's several interviews I've done where I I always end the interview wondering how come they didn't ask me about those apes. <laughs> uh, the, the John Keel, who's one of my favorite writers, he wrote a book called The Mothman Prophecies. Oh yeah, um, and Operation Trojan Horse and many other books. Uh, in uh, I read an interview with him once where he said that a lot of UFO research researchers will leave out the most important details because they're so ridiculous, they're so silly, and it's already a ridiculous, silly, insane subject anyway. So why mess everything up by throwing in this? surreal detail into the whole thing. So he said a lot of UFO researchers will leave out the most important details, but that in fact, those very details, the ones that seem the silliest, are actually usually the most important in the long run. So he always tries to leave that stuff in, doesn't try to self-censor the the material. So I I thought that was very wise. Uh, So when I was writing this, I thought, you know, I could leave out the apes, uh, but but uh, I, I wanted to leave them in because I suspect it's actually very important. And what happened was uh, the, the guy, Adam, Damien's friend, who had also been experiencing this kind of uh, harassment, though I don't know if it was to the degree that, that Damien was experiencing it, they went out to Santee, California, S-A-N-T-E-E, to this desert area, and that they saw what at first they thought were these guys, like desert, desert rats out there uh, uh, just you know shooting up targets out in the middle of the desert as they got closer they noticed that they were upright apes uh and and they were shooting like like military style you know uh uh, machine guns uh and and i remember he said they got close enough where he said he could see you know their eyes and and how intelligent they seemed and then they turned the jeep around got the hell out of there what the The, the only <laughs> the, the the only if only Harambe connect- if only Harambe had had one of those one of those guns right <laughs> the, the the only way I can connect that to anything that that is in any way logical is that um, I recently interviewed Melinda Leslie the woman I mentioned earlier the my the my lab uh, case who the one who recognized the significance of SAIC I sat down I'm I'm working on a a book now called uh, Imaginots. Uh, exploring the outer reaches of the mind, where I profile various people who I think are on like the cutting edge of human endeavor and thought. And cool. so I interviewed I interviewed Melinda because uh, her her life is a continuous surreal nightmare <laughs> or dream, uh, and she's like living in a dolly painting every every day. 
And so I, I interviewed her for about four and a half hours. And uh, she told me she was involved recently in, in Arizona in a mass abduction. Her and five other people were abducted uh, by aliens who then turned them over to the military. The military took them to an underground base where they then were testing them for their psychic abilities. They wanted them to try to move objects around with their mind. Now, this I'm just reporting to you what she said. I, I can't tell you if this is exactly what happened or how it happened, but I can say that there were five other people who were saying that they saw the same thing. Right. And also when they got there, it wasn't just them. There were hundreds of other people being abducted at the same time, also being tested at the same time. So these five people who were all in the same house together were part of a much larger group who were also being abducted at the same time, taken to this underground military base. At one point, the woman whose house they were staying in, her daughter, who was in college at the time, she was like in her 20s, like 23 at the time, she was taken with them. And at one point, she wandered off somehow, or she ended up in another area of this base, and she was in a room. This is, this, she's the only one who saw this. No one else of the other five or six people saw this. She's the only one who reported this. She was in a room where she said there were all these animals who looked like they were being experimented on. And they looked like, she's described them as weird animal, like hybrids, like half animal, half something else, you know, some Greek mythology in like these giant test tube things. Uh, and I, I wonder when, when I heard that, I wondered if that in any way explained <laughs> what, what Adam had seen in the desert way back in 2003. It's like general Aldo's out there or something. It's the planet of the apes come true. That's, <laughs> it's a little unsettling, Absolutely. you know? And you know what? There's a lot of science fiction that would, that was written by, Intelligence agents, uh, intelligence yeah. agents who, who wrote science fiction on, in their spare time, and they would slip little details into their stories because that was the only way of getting the truth out without getting arrested or violating a security oath. So you yeah. have people like Paul Linebarger who wrote, literally wrote the book on psychological warfare. He wrote science fiction under the name Cordner Smith. If you read his science fiction, it's all about secret societies, mind control, assassinations, um, political propaganda. And, you know, there's a lot of examples of that in, in science fiction. And uh, E. Howard Hunt, I believe, wrote detective novels. Yes, yes. And uh, Kurt Siotmak, uh, who was a screenwriter and also a novelist, wrote Dahman's Brain and Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. Uh, he was a member of the OSS. He wrote, he wrote a film in 1955 called Creature with the Atom Brain, which is all about turning people into mind-controlled assassin zombies. And in that film, in the mm -hmm. middle of the movie, in the exact middle of the movie, there's a scene where a scientist is giving a lecture, and he mentions Jose Delgado, the, the, the mind-control scientist I mentioned earlier, who wrote Physical Control of the Mind, who was controlling the bull with the remote control device. The, the character mentions... Jose Delgado, almost by name, he says there's this scientist in Madrid doing these experiments on monkeys and bulls that can control people from afar. And I realized that this is well before most people even knew who Jose, Jose Delgado was. And right. to this day, most people don't know who he was. But obviously, Chris Seidman has crafted this, this science fiction B movie to slip in that little detail about Delgado the and his mind The inside knowledge, experience. yeah. Well, Robert... Also, uh, just 
Oh, go, One go brief footnote, uh, Jose Delgado eventually died in 2011 in San Diego. Really? <laughs> That's where he uh, retired. It looks like we, it, it seems like San Diego is one of those cities that spook central. Absolutely. And by spook, I mean spy, intelligence agency. Uh, Robert, uh, I, would, I could talk to you all night, man, but we're going <laughs> to cut to close it out here. But tell everybody where they can get the book and contact you. And also, how is Damien doing these days? Uh, I talked to Damien fairly recently. Uh, he told me he's, he's living in the Pacific Northwest. Um, he had gone back to art school. He's actually a very good painter. Uh, and he told me that the harassment had never been worse. <laughs> it had abated for a time, and it was pretty bad now. I remember uh, Dave Schrader, Darkness Radio, saying, you know, did you ever think that maybe if you just stopped talking about it, they would stop harassing him? But actually, I mean, they hadn't stopped between 2003, and since I, you know, I don't think me writing the book has made it yeah. worse. It, it's pretty much been, you know, the same level, and it's just continued. But he said it had, in fact, intensified recently. So, it, it, it you know, sometimes it goes into abeyance, but I think that that's a, a common thing. They, they let you think, oh, maybe it stopped, and then they pull the rug out from under you later on. Uh, where can people get the book and also contact you? Uh, uh, you can order the book either through Amazon or through orbooks.com, um, O-R-B-O-O-K-S.com. And uh, you can also order Spies and Saucers, my second book, or Cryptoscatology through Amazon as well. And my, or you, you can buy Cryptoscatology from me through my website, um, which is Cryptoscatology.com, C-R-Y-P-T-O-S-C-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y.com. Excellent. Thank you so much, Robert. Uh, stay on the line for us, and we're just going to close this out, and hopefully we do not get attacked by any ape soldiers trying to take revenge on Arambe and we'll be right back. Tom knew at five, this woman is in jail tonight, accused of attacking a Lawrenceville mother and daughter. Now, the mother claims the woman was wearing a burqa when she took their American flag and attacked. Fox 5's Angelique Proctor talked to that mother. She joins us now live with the latest. Angelique? You know, this story is hard to believe, Sinead. This uh, Lawrenceville mother tells me she did absolutely nothing to provoke this attack. She says she was sitting on her own property when a total stranger picked up her American flag and started charging her with it. I've got friends that have fought and died for the red, white, and blue. When she took it down, it was not disrespect, and it was not a slap in the face. It was a punch to the gut. Dami Arno says she still can't believe total stranger Amina Ara had the audacity to attack her and her family with their own American flag. The Lawrenceville wife and mother says the unprovoked assault came out of nowhere as she and her daughter were talking in the privacy of their garage. And a lady walks up out of our, our woods in a full burqa, full attire, and stands there and stares at us for a minute, 
and then grabs my American flag off of my mailbox and charges towards us with it just swinging it with all her might. She came charging, you know, it's kind of like Mama Bear instincts kind of kicked in, and Mama said she's got to protect her children. I've got a bruise there. Miss Arno showed us bruises she says she sustained while fighting with the 30-year-old intruder she described as possessed. Oh, she gave me a run for my money at 6263. She gave me a run for my money. My daughter actually, my daughter and son actually were, were right in there with me. Arno says her 14-year-old son grabbed the family gun and threatened to shoot the female suspect. But she says the suspect didn't stop until two neighbors came and held her down. Then police arrived. Sounds like you're sitting there going, this is crazy, not, not on American soil. That's what I thought until it happened to me, my kids, and on my property with my own flag. Now, there is a little bit of mystery around this suspect. She will only tell jail officials that she is from Africa. She will not say which country. She also has given them no local address. And I talked to the Arnos today. They say they are upset that she's only charged with two misdemeanors. They believe this was a hate crime. Reporting live from Gwinnett County, Angelique Proctor, Fox 5 Yeah, some disturbing details there. All right, Angelique, thanks. Okay. So, Rob... <laughs> <laughs> I saw this today, as a matter of fact, okay? And I I just was like, when I first watched it, I, I didn't believe it. I just like, there's no way this is real. I, I thought I was watching like the, the Onion parody newscast because it's just like, I mean, how could you have two, two, two differing sides? The woman in a burqa comes flying out of the woods onto these people's home, grabs the flag off their mailbox, and begins to proceed to try to stab them with it. <laughs> the mother and the daughter are sitting outside. They're fighting them off. The 14-year-old kid, as you heard in the news report, is, is apparently grabbing a gun, ready to, uh, re ready to fire at, the, at this woman in a burqa. Rob? I, just I showed you this before we started tonight, and you said you were holding, you were going to hold back till we actually did the show. So now's your time to shine, brother. I just wanted to process. It. There's no way that we're getting all the information on this. There's no way. <laughs> like, I don't even know where to begin picking it apart. She comes out of the woods wearing a burqa, grabs the flag <laughs> off the mailbox, and proceeds to give the woman a couple bruises. And I, I just, I'm, I don't know. And she's. Um, She's six two six. She's six two six three. Uh huh. What? What? <laughs> well, if she's Somali. I mean, they're generally tall people. Oh, okay. So I mean, that's not that's not that's not that's, that's not unusual, I guess. But I, I I don't even know what to think about this story, man. I really don't. But but in light of what we just talked about with Robert Guffey, I have to wonder here. My favorite quote is, "How could this happen on American soil?" In a country yeah. that's so segregated and so full of hatred and so full of mistrust, how could this possibly happen here? Like, <laughs> was there a reason that this happened? Exactly. Was, that's what I'm saying. There's no details. Was, was she mad just that the flag was on the was on the mailbox? Had these people done something to this, this lady? This lady's been like this. Had she been... done something to these people? What What is the story here? And apparently, she's saying the only thing she can say is that she's from Africa and her name. I 
I don't know. We deal with another MK Ultra here. <laughs> we just deal with an experiment gone horribly wrong. Hey, put this burka on and run over there and try to kill these people. Is it even a real story? Like that's the thing. It just seems just totally bizarre. But it's on the news in Atlanta. And they have the picture of the woman. I mean, they've got to, I mean, you know, we, we talk about all this kind of stuff. You know, if you, I looked it up on Snopes. They didn't even have anything on it. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, 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 it's got to be something real about this thing. Last time I read an Atlanta news story, it was about a dude raping a woman's pit bulls. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I guess it's just the weirdness that happens down in Atlanta, I suppose. There's man. something in the water. I, I love some of the comments. Like, one of the comments on it was in like caps and it said Donald Trump 2016. That was one of the comments on the YouTube video I took the clip from. <laughs> oh, my God. This wouldn't have happened if Trump was in office. <laughs> oh, we wouldn't have women in burkas coming out of the woods and trying to kill people. Just, <laughs> you can imagine how this is gonna. This is gonna be all over talk radio. I mean, I'm sure it's already gonna be on Glenn Beck and several Alex Jones, and it's it's already gonna be everywhere. But it's just, it's okay. The Muslim thing, whatever, whatever you think about that. We've talked about that plenty on this show. But this is such a bizarre episode and it's just strange and when things like this happen the one thing i want people to keep in mind is that okay this is one crazy individual running out of a woods this is not a group of people <laughs> whatever she's doing maybe in the woods lurking like, in the woods rob maybe they're you know they send her in there there's to, not i'm not afraid that there's a bunch of muslims hiding in the woods behind my house that are going to come and attack me Maybe she forgot. Maybe she forgot her belt. You know, their suicide vest, and she just grabbed the first thing. You know, which was the American flag. <laughs> oh oh no, yes, no. I cannot. That was, that was intentional. Right it was a hate crime. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I'm kind of conflicted on that. I mean, we'll be serious about it for for a second. I mean, like I'm kind of conflicted about that because if she's like, if she meant to do harm and it had a political or religious reason, that is kind of that is kind of a definition of of a hate crime. But I think the cops are looking at it like, what do we do with this? It's just so strange. It, it could just be somebody that's just mentally ill. Well, that's the only explanation that makes sense. Nobody comes running out of a woods and grabs something and attacks a random person. <laughs> unless they're mentally ill. Yeah. You don't that's, just... that's scary, too. When I was growing up in the country, like I was scared of someone coming out of the woods. Like some kind of nutcase like coming out of the woods and like stabbing one of us. Somebody in a clown suit. Oh, God. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Someone told me that in, um, in the area that I grew up, like uh, it was just some kid messing with me on the bus, but they told me that there was some homeless dude like living in the woods that would, would go break into people's houses and steal groceries, and he was just like camping out somewhere just randomly in the woods. <laughs> it freaked me out so bad. You're always, always on the lookout for him? Yeah. Well, you also had Hippie Holler out there. Too. Hippie Holler. Yeah. yeah. Charles Manson's family lived out there. Yeah, it's true. Now now Kristen Stewart is out there visiting. Kristen Stewart. Because it's a distillery now. Oh, the one Short, from... Short Mountain Distillery. Chick from Twilight? Yeah, well, she was just out there like in a photo shoot or that something like that. That must have like been that. the big thing to happen in Watertown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kristen Stewart. Oh, we did Justin Bieber. 
Yeah, Justin Bieber did, Justin a, Bieber did, did a, a video, video in the square. In, in the square in Watertown? Uh-huh. Nobody knows. They, they remodeled <laughs> the laundromat just for his video. As Jeff says, for all our Czech Republic fans, Watertown <laughs> is a city in, in, in uh, Tennessee. You can tell I listen to the Leisure Hour. Give them a plug, Rob. Oh, yeah. They're, they're our sister show. It's a comedy show. I also produce. Uh, you can find it on uh, ourleisure.com, H-O-U-R, leisure.com. If you need something completely opposite to turn your day around and make you laugh. <laughs> yeah. Well, we need was, to go interview Watertonians. <laughs> that was one of the that was one of the things, man, was uh that Robert made a good point about was that you know, this kind of stuff that we talk about is so weighty that you just have to Yeah. You have to laugh at some of the stuff about how ridiculous some of it is. Exactly. If you and, don't and he, gonna, yeah, he made that point great. Like you will bury yourself yes. in it and get consumed by which is why we need luke here <laughs> yeah that is why we need luke here he he brings the mirth and the merriment <laughs> luke just real quickly uh we didn't get to talk about your experiences at paradigm symposium but uh tell everybody what you did in minneapolis man that that randall dude was rad like he, he to me he's one of the best people we've ever interviewed and i'm sorry to all of our other guests i don't mean no offense by it but he was he just was super interesting but yeah. not yeah, we'll I'd, have him on. We're going to have him on the show. Yeah, uh, good. for a full interview. I think that that's going to have to happen. Uh, yeah, one one of my friends was like super impressed that I talked or Squashy. You know Squashy Buns. Like he he was Everybody knows. <laughs> yeah. He he was super impressed that I talked like he knows who Randall is and he's like does you he really? Yeah, he's like you talked to Randall and hung out with him and I was like, "Yeah. See, <laughs> you hang out with us. That's what happens." <laughs> but um I I got off by myself when I was in Minneapolis, and I went to uh, uh, Minneapolis uh, Art in- uh, Institute of Art, which is this huge museum, man. It was really cool. Um, just I only made it through one floor and one wing of the museum before it closed. Super interesting. Pieces from around the world. <clears throat> and then I went to uh, – I checked out the local bars. I checked out some restaurants. Uh, I went to um, – I walk the whole Greenway, or one of the Greenways. They're all over the place. Like, the Greenway is actually in town, and it goes underneath the old streets of downtown. That's so that, pretty cool. Yeah, that's really that's neat. That's pretty cool. And uh, what else? Adventures at Mall of America. Yeah, um, yeah, Mall of America. That that was, uh, it, it's not really as big as I had expected. I expected it to, or I read uh, articles online talking about how it takes an entire day, you know, waking up early in the morning until late at night or until when it closes to walk the entire thing. And it took me a lot less time than that. Yeah. Well, you didn't shop either. Yeah. I, I, I don't shop every time. I mean, I go to Opry Mills here in Nashville all the time and I, I never buy anything. I just walk around and look at chicks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really did say my goodbyes to you as you were walking away though. Like I didn't think you were coming back. <laughs> well, I, I just, after like uh, three o'clock or something like that, I started getting bored. I was like, well, nobody, there's nobody here to hang out with. I met someone that I knew there uh, that I met before in Nashville. So that was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, that's, that is a very strange coincidence, too. Yeah. That's pretty you far to, away. You went to the art museum. It was funny because one of the people we were talking to, when you said where you walked, they said you worked in like someplace on Chicago Avenue. And they said you walked down Chicago Avenue and you didn't get killed. <laughs> it, it was, um, yeah, it was a little rough. I, there was crazy looking, like strung out homeless people, like walking around, like looking at me weird. And 
<laughs> well, we went down there and we parked, and within 30 seconds, someone was trying to sell us coke. Yeah, somebody tried to sell us coke. Yeah. yeah. Just so, so nonchalant about it, too. Like, hey, guys, you want some coke? You want some coke, man? You want some coke, man? <laughs> Y'all need some coke? All right, guys, if there's nothing else we need to add, uh, we'll go ahead and close it out. But uh, next, uh, we're going to be taking a break because Rob, is, well, actually, I'm going to be doing a show. Um, we're going to do a little interview with John Ward and Stephen. We're going to talk about what's going on in Europe and uh, possibility of Great Britain exiting out of the uh, European Union, uh, what they think about all that and what's going on. Uh, Rob is going to be at Bonnaroo. Bonnaroo and then Firefly up in Delaware. Yeah. Woohoo. And but you guys won't miss anything, so we got some in the can for you. Oh yeah, we we still have about like it looks like almost six hours of interviews that we did at Paradise Symposium. Uh, one of which we'll have Randall Carlson that we're going to post, Laird Scranton. Uh, we got Rocky, Scotty, and John, which was an amazingly uh, bizarre um, interview <laughs> that we did with them. But uh, we had to kind of whittle that one down. And a special guest with uh, Mennonite Bob, right? Yes. And so, I, I didn't take as much out of that as I thought I would. As you th- yeah, I think yeah. you only took like 25 minutes. Which yeah, was, just, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't as much a train wreck as we thought. <laughs> but uh, get, I, go got a, I got a couple of plugs, too, for some friends, yeah. if yeah, you go don't ahead, mind. Go ahead. Well, you some, I want some money if, this, uh, <laughs> if, if, if we get it. I, I was told to tell everyone about uh, Nashville's Johnny Walker Tours. Uh, you can get vacation packages, hotel, Grand Ole Opry, Country Music Hall of Fame, etc. Um, and the CMA, CMA Fest is coming up uh, 9th through the 12th of June. Uh, so yeah, Johnny Walker Tours. Check that out if you're interested in coming and seeing Nashville and what it's all about. And then also I'd like to uh, talk about Providence Safe Rooms, uh, the company that I'm uh, employed with. And they sell... Um, Shelters, customized shelters, quarter-inch steel all around, uh, gun safes, customizable gun safes. And they're one of the top rated for safety in the nation. So um, check them out, too, if you're interested. And there's also, we're opening a new store location out in uh, Oklahoma City. So check it out if you're interested. For all the people in Oklahoma City, anybody that wants to cower down for the, the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, we, the, we when sell. The, when the ape army takes over <laughs> for, revenge, for revenge from Harambe. We, we sell so. a lot of. Uh, shelters um, out west. So, excellent. Well, tell them I want some money. <laughs> tell, them, tell them you heard about conspiracy normal, and Adam gets some money. And Rob. <laughs> Nothing for Luke. All right, guys. <laughs> We're gonna close this out, and guys, we will be back. Uh, looks like next week, and forever more on Conspiranormal.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.